0: Welcome to episode 116 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the Boards. Joining me today is fellow demon hunter of Tokyo, Derek Eamesburg. That's
1: me, I'm Derek, I'm Embryon on the Boards, and uh, Tokyo is uh, still a pretty dark and desolate place, but at least I've got the power of friendship to keep me company along the way.
0: More importantly, at least you know where the hell you're going now thanks to a great map, am I right? Come on,
1: map markers. I know, right? It's
0: awesome. Uh yeah, seriously. Okay, so we're going to talk about Shimogami Tensei for Apocalypse. Of course, of course. But we also have other people to introduce right now. We have Caitlyn... I'm I'm not doing the Adam Jensen joke. What? Uh, no, then I no, will. No, 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 don't, 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 don't. I am so... Okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Can, Every, can she be Caitlyn
1: oh, who lives, who dies, who retells her stories? That's fine. That
0: is, yes. that is totally fine. No, I, I'm guilty of this as well, like in my Deus Ex... Freaking previews where I was just like, you asked for this, and I was like, yeah, I'm being funny and clever. And that was like two years ago, and now I hate myself like, for doing every that. Every
1: journalist on the internet has written yes. that his, in a day.
0: Yeah. Every journalist ever now has to do the Adam Jensen line, which I still don't know how that became a meme. I, I really don't under like it's it's a throwaway line in the middle of like the first CG trailer for the game. I how did that become? A, how did the <laughs> Arthur Finch fist clench? From a PBS show, like, become a thing, like...
2: It's in Human Revolution. It's not just in a trailer.
0: Yeah, but, like, he said... It's not like he goes around, like, every other, like... It's not like his catchphrase, like, Wubba-lubba-dub-dub dub, or something like that. Like, it's just... Like, <laughs> well, that's
1: now my catchphrase. <laughs> that
3: would be
2: interesting.
0: Okay, apparently nobody here watches Rick and Morty, and I am now horrified to be with all of you. Hey, I like, we watch it worry, together. I, I do. Okay, okay. You and I were
1: in the same bed when we watched it, Rob, okay? It's okay, you you liked
2: Elysium. I'm also horrified. Oh. (laughs) All right. Okay, I
0: deserve that. All right, all right. Moving along, moving along. We have uh, Michael Draque Solose.
4: Yep, that's me. I'm playing Doraque 7 right now, so I'm living up to that title, I guess.
0: Are you really playing it right now? Mm Mm-hmm. God, I love you. I need to start playing it. I, mean, I, I, I want to hear the music. Turn it up. Turn
1: it up. Okay, that's it's exactly so what I expected to hear. It's Thank so you. whimsical. All right, volume down.
0: How can you not smile with Dragon Quest? That's like straight
1: what? out of The prices, Right. Ah. <laughs> wow.
0: Oh, all right, just... Okay. Uh, And then we also have newcomer to the podcast who is also playing Dragon Quest 7 and has the most JRPGS sounding name in existence. We have Nick Ransbottom. Hello. It's nice nice to be here.
5: Cool. 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 You excited to be on the show for the first time? Yes. Battling my crippling social anxiety, you know, pushing down that rising vomit in my throat.
1: Ooh, that's me every day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I have I to explain that. I have to explain to my students like I have a natural stutter, I do, and so like I have to think constantly about what I'm saying. They're like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you get up and teach us every day." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm I wasn't like born like this. It's something you kind of have to work on." So like again, one of the reasons we do the podcast here on it the wild Storm.
1: Far more loquacious
0: these days. I do what I can, I do what I can. So, speaking of loquacious and cyber implants, I guess, uh, let's talk <laughs> about Deus Ex. Let's, let's... I, okay, I'm not the, not the master of the segue over here or something, okay?
1: No, I thought you were going for Shimagami Tensei, so it, that could have no. gone either way.
0: No, 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 we're going to talk about Deus Ex first, because that's been out the longest. So, Caitlin, you played the Deus Exes.
2: Yeah, the Deus Ex I.
0: Do sexes. <laughs>
4: Once I typed that into my phone and it came out as Days of Sex, which was great. Yeah,
2: yeah, that happened to me one
0: yeah. time. Yep, yep. Caitlin, you liked Mankind Divided.
2: Uh, I did, it, but it's a qualified like. It's still Ooh. overall a very good game, but it has one glaring problem that is kind of hard to overlook um, for an RPG. But. Let me get into it. I'm actually going to borrow your your compliment sandwich from from episodes before because I think it's a good way to tackle this game. Start with the good, talk about some of the bad, and then go, you know, end strong. So on the good side, um, very much-needed graphical update. Um, I remember playing Human Revolution for retro and thinking, wow, this game looks a lot worse than I remember it. It, mm-hmm. it really like, it, the art style has always been great and the art style is still great in Mankind Divided, but it really needed that little boost coming to the current gen consoles. Everything looks pretty. Prague is a, is a beautiful, uh, mixture of classical sort of Baroque design and sci fi elements. Uh, you have like these giant, uh, structures that are covering the, uh, the rivers that, or the river that's in Prague that's sort of a stark contrast to the more sort of traditional buildings you're walking around. And so uh, graphically, it's all good. The characters look better, um, qualified better. Uh, Jensen looks better than pretty much anyone else in the game, but that makes sense. since You're staring at his grizzled maw. He looks
1: especially better in that shower scene towards the beginning.
2: Okay. Yes!
0: this was a debate on the Giant Bombcast. Is his ass metal? I thought it was only his legs.
1: They never That's show you. great question, yeah. I, I, I also had that that query of, like, where does it cut off?
0: Yeah, like, is it his upper thighs? And, like, if it is his actual, like, bottom, like, does that mean he has a cybernetic sphincter? Like, what, what's going
4: on? Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm he doesn't have a spine to support you, all that force.
5: Do you think a cybernetic sphincter would sound like an accordion?
2: I'm
1: a little grindier, but yeah.
2: I'm not. Why am I surprised that we that we got on this topic?
1: I'm really sorry. I brought Random that encounter, that. the RPG fan podcast.
4: sphincter Encounter, the
2: cybernetic.
1: No, absolutely
4: not.
2: Podcast. Well, if if it is a cybernetic sphincter, I'm sure it looks beautiful. <laughs> but moving on. Okay. Um, I think the best thing about the game is the level design and the refinements that they've made to the gameplay. Um, Prague, it's not, you shouldn't go into it expecting it to be like Witcher level of open world design. It's still a closed world, but it's a very dense closed Mm -hmm. world that is larger than the hub worlds from Human Revolution. Lots of winding roads, lots of paths to explore, uh, safe houses to crack. Obviously, there are events all over the place. But I think they did a really good job of using that space and giving you lots of different avenues by which to move through areas and reach your objectives. There's a place you go to midway through the game that was pretty impressive from a visual standpoint, but also just from a standpoint of how many different uh routes you could take and how you could sort of mix and match take take this vent and then maybe jump over this building here and climb up a ladder there take an elevator there and they all worked well and organically and it was it was really an impressive uh standout moment of the game and then i mean the gameplay is they haven't changed the basic format the basic you know deus ex structure from human revolution you can you can shoot your way through, you can hack your way through, you can stealth your way through. Um, But they've made so many little tiny improvements that make everything feel uh, better. Um, I actually think one of the best improvements was the changes they made to the control scheme, which takes a little bit of getting used to, but it makes such a huge difference to have more like traditional FPS controls than the weirdness that Human Revolution had with how you had to go into iron sights and whatnot, so it, it. Can I
0: can I jump in real quick because I I find this interesting because I think Derek actually started playing Mankind Divided uh-huh, before uh-huh, I did, uh-huh. and the text messages I started getting of just like oh dear God this control scheme why is this happening like Caitlin did you use the control scheme that started with the game did you change yeah.
2: it and- I I used met the. "Quote unquote," mankind divided control scheme from start to finish. Okay. Which is, yeah. So, and I mean, it took me—I don't know, maybe a half an hour or so through the the the, uh, the prologue mission to get used to how they remapped a few things compared to Human Revolution. Um, but once I did, I think I think the most awkward thing about the control scheme is how they have you uh, holster your weapon, which is a little weird sometimes. Um,
1: I, I hated having to uh, manually get up from a crouch every time I went into cover.
2: Like, I mean...
1: I, I, I don't know. I think maybe I just wasn't in the right mindset when I played it because I felt like something like Mass Effect I found so much more intuitive. And I, I don't play a ton of shooters like, ex- with the exception of Overwatch, which pretty much everybody plays Overwatch if you like shooters. Um, and I know that Deus Ex is not like, strictly a shooter. It obviously has enough RPG elements for us to consider it a worthy topic of discussion and critique on our website. It's just a... I think that it's... I mean, it does have sort of FPS trappings, and I think that the... For me, the default control scheme didn't really lend itself to, like, intuitive play. And I tried fiddling with different ones. I found eventually that the standard, the shooter control scheme um, was the easiest for me to, to deal with, but, man, it just... It took some serious adjustment, and, like, usually control schemes... I think controls aren't something that I normally battle with, if anything. I mean, there can be a learning curve, but this is the first game I played in, in years where I sat down and I was just like, I cannot get a grip on this, and it's making me furious. So now I know how Rob feels.
0: That anger is important. Uh I, I'm playing on PC, and... uh I was able to completely remap the controls, which made life great for me. Like, uh, I have a mouse that has like four additional buttons, and so I was able to put all the hotkeys on there for all my abilities. I will say that the PC version has gotten a lot of hate, and here a month after release, I'm still kind of disappointed with it. Uh, the load times are absolutely atrocious on PC. If you're not running from a solid state drive, like we're talking two to three minutes to get into Prague. The first time you boot the game up, like that's, it, that's unreasonable. Like that's, that, that
2: that has not been my experience on PS4.
0: Yeah. I, it's something to do with the PC optimization. There's a lot of stuttering in Prague. the, the smaller environments, like the levels, will load super fast, and like they run like butter and look great, 60 frames per second on my 1070. Absolutely awesome, but uh, I think it's two things. I think this game is optimized mostly for ATI, and of course I switched away from ATI because, you know, that's what I did. And it just seems like the PC port is a little troublesome, and that also doesn't surprise me because this is an extension of... The new Hitman engine and the new Hitman engine continues to run like butt, like that game cannot maintain 60 frames to save its life. So I I felt like the game, it feels a little rickety to me, like it, I'm kind of surprised how it controls, like it asks you to platform sometimes and it really doesn't pull that off nearly as smoothly as Dishonored. And I was like, don't ask me to kind of be jumping along windowsills if you really can't do that right. So, you know, just, just a little bit of jankiness here and there. But overall, like, I, I agree with Caitlin's assessment so far, which is, like, this is a Deus Ex-ass Deus Ex, Deus Ex game. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to say that three times fast. But, like, it's a Deus Ex game. They give you lots of different ways to go about your tasks, lots of different ways to get in and out of buildings. The hacking minigame is still fun. Like, all of that's good. Now I think we're moving on to the to the fun part of the compliment
2: sandwich. Which is the problems. Yeah. Yes. Um so well, okay. The easy problem is that the animations are still bad. That's like so weird, yeah. Not 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 like the worst thing ever because that's Human Revolutions animations. They're they're not quite that bad, but they're still so incredibly stiff and they've they improved camera angles a little bit, but you're still sometimes looking at Jensen or this random character making you know the same movement that they were uh, a few lines ago, and you're just like, "Come on really
0: and, and the the blank the cut to black whenever you do a melee takedown is still like that, that doesn't that...
2: bother me nearly as much, but it just know. feels
0: weird like it, it's one of those things where like, if you told me that this game was an expansion." to Human Revolution, I would believe you. Mm-hmm. Like, like it it feels like the exact same engine. It feels like I'm doing the exact same things.
2: Just with that, a nicer coat of paint, yeah. Yeah,
0: like, and, and I'm not bummed out by that, but the, what kept ringing in my head over and over again was our argument this time last year with Fallout 4, where I'm like, okay, I've played a lot of these Bethesda RPGs, This is another one of those with barely any improvements. I'm tired of this. What I texted to Caitlin when she was playing Mankind Divided for review was if they did, like, two more of these games, I'd be very upset. Like, Mm -hmm. two more of these exact style games. But since this is, like, one of the only immersive role-playing first-person games out there with the exception of probably Dishonored, which we don't cover, and I love that game, very much looking forward to two – if there were more Deus Ex games being released in rapid succession, I would probably be just as tired of them. But since it's been, what, four years since the last one? Like, five years since the last five one. Five
2: years. Was yeah, Jesus. Yeah.
0: I, I was single, ladies. Uh, like, every girl in the world just went, oh, thank God he's taken. Oh, jeez. Uh, but like, they, you guys can laugh at that instead of just, like, leaving it hanging. I'm like silently chuckling. Making me feel horrible about myself over here.
4: I almost did a cricket whistle after that. I,
0: I, thank you for not doing that. You don't that.
1: need me to help you feel horrible about
0: yourself, bro. <laughs> but, like, if, if this game... If I was getting a Deus Ex game every year, I think that Assassin's Creed thing would start to slip in pretty fast. Does that make sense? Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, my biggest issue... With the game and the thing that I docked the most in my review was the story and this is a little um, complicated uh, I want to stress that it's not bad nothing about the story itself is like starkly super bad it, it's a competent story that has a start middle and an end but in comparison to Human Revolution, it feels like a letdown. Human Revolution was brilliant in the fact that it was a gray story. You had all we had these all these different viewpoints about whether augmentation was a good or bad thing, and you were allowed to pick your response. Jensen could have any he could be pro, he could be neutral, he could be anti. And the endings I know we all have problems with them, but sort of the brilliance of the endings was it carried on that theme of having the world and the game story be gray and letting you choose your narrative for for the world for the for the events at the end of the game. *Mankind Divided* is so much more of a black and white, uh, in-your-face experience with the way its its world and its themes are presented. There's no, there's no gray. There's, there's very little nuance in the turn, in, in the big issue of the game, which is uh, augmented people being oppressed, uh, in the wake of a horrible incident that happened at the end of Human Revolution. Um, all. Does it make ag- one
4: of the Human Revolution endings canon?
2: Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, well, the thing is, we don't know which one, but it definitely eliminates one of the endings as uh-huh. being not possible. Uh-huh um okay. and and that's also a frustration it's you actually wouldn't necessarily learn about this unless you did an optional area but you can find out how they whitewashed your choice at the end of the game
3: mm-hmm. in
2: such a way as to make it essentially a non choice
0: yeah which is unfortunate and i i i wanted to jump in real quick because the, this game has been so interesting to watch for the past year as like every press release and uh, piece of PR has come out for this game, and to watch both sides of this argument about you know whether it's okay for this game to be doing certain things, you know, I I've been on both sides of the argument. On one hand, I think that it's great for a science fiction game to tell a story that is well meaning and steeped in what's going on in present day politics. I think that's part of one of the great things sci-fi can do. At the same time, putting a bunch of posters up that say, "Og Lives Matter," yeah, that's probably not in the best taste probably not something to do but what I find so interesting and Caitlin kind of nailed it and I want to get back to her real quick is people want to play games both ways they want games where they get lots of player choice but then apparently they also want games that say something and so you have this real push-pull of some people want Adam Jensen to be a complete blank slate and him to be a character that the player completely controls but then you also have people that say, well, you know, to avoid the Bioshock infinite problem of saying both sides are bad. They're like, no, you need to come down on a firm stance. And this game clearly comes down on the uh kind of segregation is bad. And then people are complaining about that for taking away the player's choice. And I, I guess theoretically letting Adam side with the segregation people. But like, I, I just feel like this was a damned if you do damned, if you don't like, yeah. Two, two sides were pulling this game in two very different directions. There was the the gameplay conceit of playing a character that you are shaping, and then also, but don't, but don't say for a second that segregation's bad. Uh, segregation's good. And I'm like, well, at that point, like, I would have just thrown the story out and been like, we need to do something else. Because we can't keep both camps happy. You can't say nothing and then say something. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know... <laughs> that 's also the weird thing is that the games the world and the themes are very much selling, selling you this one message of you know oh, oppression is bad, augmented people are being oppressed unfairly and and the the regimes and the cops and the 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 uh, the, the, the world are, at large are, are are wrong and are are uh, prejudiced. Jensen himself doesn't really get a lot of opportunity to comment on that. You have maybe a few different places where a character asks you how you feel and you can say you can make a statement. But he also doesn't really seem to have an opinion beyond that. Like it's not it's this weird thing where he you cannot necessarily role play him into a certain standpoint. He has to be on a particular side of things, but he also doesn't uh, overstate any real opinion or slant to to that end. It's this weird sort of middle ground between having a blank slate character that you can shape how you want and having a more defined persona. And and it just ends up making him feel like more of a generic action hero, whereas he was, again, more nuanced in Human Revolution. And him learning about what happens in my relation and his own past is part of the whole overarching story here. I don't know. It's just like, you know, he's become more of a, like I said, a generic action hero. And. They're
0: they're also screwed because you can't have him then side with the segregation side without running the risk of, You know, you know, to me that is a terrible viewpoint. Like that would just completely turn me off to the character. And so you want to give him this agency and choice, but he really does. Like he always kind of goes with, "Yes, this whole segregation thing kind of sucks." And it's like, okay, well now you have no personality because your personality has been set, but you're still giving me dialogue choices. Mm -hmm. And and the last thing I wanted to bring up was, to me. I go back to the Krogans in Mass Effect, where I'm like, you could see both sides of the Krogan argument, which was, okay, the Krogans are warlike people that are just screwing up the entire galaxy, but at the same time, they're people. So how do we deal with this? And that was a very, like, I can see both sides of the argument. In Mankind Divided, I can see a little bit of the segregation argument because the, this horrible event happened that made all the aug people go crazy and that does shift. I, I don't like the argument that's being used over and over again of like well, you they chose to get augmentations. Yeah, but they also didn't ask for this horrible thing to happen that made every augmented person in the world suddenly put into a box of you might go nuts any minute and start killing people. So I, I think there's a little nuance there that was lost in some of the arguments that were made against this game, but I also don't think the writing was clever or good enough to To give the segregation side more ammunition than that so then there's no choice to be made just one side's black one side's white the way that uh caitlin said and i I apologize i wasn't meaning for that to be a pun given what's going no i really wasn't like in in what's going on in the world i wasn't giving that uh, to mean a pun but it's one side is clearly in the wrong here Mm -hmm. and so that that takes away nuance and that was yeah i don't know that was a bit of a shame
2: and the game, it's, I mean, the game is unsubtle in other ways, too. Um, there's there's a character that you meet, and I won't say when because I don't want to spoil it, but you meet this character, and he's so obviously a bad guy just from how his character design and the, the dialogue that you have with him. I knew whether he, I didn't know if he was going to be the final boss or something, but I knew I was going to fight him at some point because of how they presented him. And I was right. I did end up fighting him. And not that you knew in Human Revolution you were probably going to end up fighting the Spec Ops guys at some point. That was a given. But Human Revolution kept you guessing about who was the big bad, who was ultimately behind everything, up until the very last minute. I don't think that most people playing that game for the first time suspected who was really pulling the strings. I mean, Mm -hmm. beyond the whole... Illuminati is involved in some way because obviously original Deus Ex they have to be involved. But the actual person who ends up causing the 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 climax of the game I don't think people saw that coming. Here it's 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 slightly less than blindingly obvious who did who did the super bad thing at the start of the game that starts everything off. And the ending is also problematic. I mentioned I feel like it really sets up for. A sequel, which is good and bad. I mean, I w- would very much like to have another game. Um, there are some plot threads that they set up in this game that, if they tug on them the way I hope they will, could really uh, create a, an amazing oh oh crap uh, plot twist in another game. That'd be really fun to see. But at the end of the day, you're kind of left feeling like this was a massive detour for for Adam. And um, like he says at the start of the game, I have to find the true power brokers. That's one of the very first things he says. And guess what he says at the end of the game?
3: i got to find the power broker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, so uh, it's
2: just, it's, ah, again, nothing of it, nothing is super, super horrible bad. It's still an enjoyable story, but it just doesn't feel like it lives up to human revolution.
0: Yeah. There's there's also the problem of... Uh, Jim Sterling reported on this, so I want to give credit where credit's due, but he was saying that he he had talked to people who worked on the game, and this was a full epic story that has apparently been split up into a trilogy. Yes. Do, do you kind of feel that, Caitlin?
2: Oh, I feel that,
0: yes. Okay, that's a shame. Yeah. That's a real shame. I,
2: the, again, I... Uh,
0: go
2: uh, ahead, Caitlin. There's, there's a mid-credits cutscene, a la Marvel, that... Is like the gotcha, the hook that's going to be moving the into the next game. Yeah.
0: Did Spider-Man just come swinging in like Captain America style?
2: <laughs> Sadly was not that good.
0: Yeah. I again, I'm really digging this game. I want to get back into it. I played it a little bit this afternoon and remembered I have no idea how to control this anymore. And like I'm going to have to get over that hump that happens when you don't play a game for like a month. I liked what I was playing. But I will say that I watched a two-minute video of Dishonored 2 the other day, and I feel bad for the Deus Ex guys. I really do. I I think Dishonored 2 looks like it's taking everything from the original game and ratcheting it up to 11. And they also do not have the baggage of trying to tell, like, a sci-fi story that's relevant to today. So I think that game is better positioned right now. Mankind Divided is a very fun game, but I probably would have said that if it came out two years after the original and this game does not feel like it was five years in the making, if that makes sense. Still much better than Thief. Dear God, this game is better than Thief. And that
4: I've was- said hello far, though.
0: Thief was terrible. But, like, this game is doing some really smart things. It's some of the best stealth, you know, Metal Gear style stealth action that's been yes. available in a long time. Very, very fun. Good sense of awareness. I enjoy it, but it's kind of the same goddamn game in a lot of ways. It's it's got the yeah. same hacking mini game. It's got that's, the same interface like
2: That's what I was telling people when I started playing it was this is basically just a prettier human revolution. Yeah. So if you like Human Revolution, you'll like this game, although I you know, personally I was a little bit disappointed in the story. But if you didn't like Human Revolution, you're gonna find probably the same issues you had with Human Revolution present in this game. And I don't know, in, in, depending on what your issues were, you may not find something that, you know, lets you enjoy it. So
0: I don't know. Yep. I, I'm i looking forward to finishing it. I will probably have more complete thoughts in due time, but...
2: Uh, it, There's also Breach.
0: Yeah, which... We, which which I I enjoyed it when I played it at E3, but then apparently all the microtransactions that they said were not going to add too many, they've kind of gone a little crazy with.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's um, it's fun. I mean, it's it's what it looked like is bite-sized little chunks of gameplay that kind of you know resemble a VR you know Metal Gear Solid VR missions kind of thing. It's the same basic gameplay from uh, from the main story. Uh, they tweaked a few things, like some of your augments are, work a little differently. Um, they, you have more upgrades, which, you know, to compensate for it being a, uh, sort of an arcade style game, give you more to have to upgrade. Um, I didn't personally get to the point where I felt like I needed to start using real money to progress, although I have heard some people say that that is a thing that maybe happens depending on how fast you progress through the levels. Yeah. Um, Gross. but, yeah. I mean, that option is there. I just, there's plenty of ways that you can get around it. I, like I said, I never felt like I had to spend real money in order to keep progressing. So it either is a late game thing or I, I don't know. Um, ironically, I think my favorite part about Breach is the really bare bones uh sort of uh text heavy story. There's not really much of a story with Breach. The, the idea is that you are a, uh, they're called rippers. Um, you're basically a hacker who rips data uh, from, you know, secured locations that it's then spread, spread to the public to expose corruption and other bad stuff going on. And you find a hole into uh, this secure data bank, which is called the hole is called a breach. So that's where the name comes from. And you have to, extract the data, you get these little case files that you can do um, while you're exploring missions. And there are things like uh, trying to find out why this family's daughter mysteriously died when she was undergoing experimental treatment or trying to learn about this new technology that a company has and then that they apparently fired one of their employees after they brought him on to, to work on it. And you uncover little is conspiracies and, and the like as you're going through, and it's again the partition is not very sophisticated. It's a bunch of it's reading documents and engaging in uh, text chat with some of your your support crew, which I mean it's kind of a neat little thing that the main game added in too, where you can occasionally ch- uh, chat with people. There's some minor dialogue choices you can make.
0: Oh, uh, I love those sections. Like yeah. I did a couple of those, and I want more of that.
2: Yeah, I thought that was a really cool addition to the main game. It's not—you're not just hacking a computer and reading emails now. You might also be able to text chat and possibly open up other routes by text chatting. Um, so it, that's you know, that's the the presentation, and so it's all pretty much text based. But the stories were actually kind of interesting. I found myself wanting to keep playing so I could find that next piece of evidence to to figure out what was really going on. So I kind of applaud them for that. They could have just made it a straight-up arcade, here's a bunch of missions, go have fun. But having those uh, those case files, you know, kind of was a motivating factor for me.
1: It's an unexpected bonus, sounds like. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And now I mean, we have the DLC that just came out today. Um, they, as of this recording, it just was released today. The first of two... I believe, story DLCs, and we'll see if they're at all substantial. Um, mm. I don't know.
1: I heard that it brings back a character from the first game. Yes! Do you have a question?
4: A certain person that may have died in the first game? No. No. Ah, rats. No. I was hoping it would be Malik.
2: I was hoping that too, although... Um, IDOS Montreal next DLC. Do it. Do it.
4: Bring back Farida.
2: Yes. Oh, she's such a better, she's such a much better VTOL pilot than the guy that you get in *Mankind Divided*, who I really don't like. So I,
4: I, I wish they had explored her obvious crush on Jensen a little more, but well, whatever. That I mean, I, I haven't played *Mankind Divided*, but I, I'm intrigued by it since I actually played *Human*. Uh, revolution for the first time last year for a Retro Encounter. But, yeah, you guys have a lot to say about it, that's for sure.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, uh, we will leave Adam Jensen behind to continue dividing mankind. Uh, let's go to post-apocalyptic Tokyo with uh, Shin Megami Tensei for apocalypse. apocalypse. Derek, you and I are playing this. Yeah. Yeah. Apocalypse. Apocalypse. It's pretty good.
3: That. It's yeah, bad.
1: it's um, it's very much in the vein of Final Fantasy X two, and that you revisit many of the same areas where different things are happening under different circumstances. Um, Shin Megami Tensei Four Apocalypse plays out as a what if story, um, kind of following the neutral route in Shin Megami Tensei Four. Uh, takes place starting near the end of Shin Megami Tensei Four story, and kind of turns into its own thing from there. Um, and this one, you play as a uh, hunter named Nanashi, which literally means no name in Japanese. Um, he's a kid who was orphaned, and he wants to basically, like, be a hunter so that he can help uh, the other people in Tokyo survive. They, he does stuff like scavenge for food and uh, old junk that he can sell. So pretty early in the game, Nanashi's hanging with his friend, uh, Asahi, and his couple of mentors when he gets attacked and killed by a demon. Um, this is... Not spoilery, as Atlas has like said it a million times, and it's it happens in like the first hour of the game. So you die, and uh, you're revived by this demon named Dogda, and he wants to use you as a pawn in some kind of scheme uh, to kind of like re sort of like remake the universe, as far as I can tell.
0: Um, real, real real quick, Dogda is the mother effing man. I Dagda. love Dogda. He is just his voice acting is incredible. H- Irish-
1: di- is that Irish or Scottish?
0: Uh, I believe it's uh, it's slightly Scottish. Now I guess it would be Irish. I guess it's more Irish. Uh, but I, he is a Scottish deity. I'm pretty sure. But oh, whatever. He's awesome. I love him. He he is absolutely fantastic. And uh, I just love his like just complete just fed up with reality. Like that is yeah. just his like his characterization is. I'm done with this. I am absolutely done with it. Yeah.
1: Uh, if you played Shin Megami Tensei 4, you may remember that the main character, Flynn, had his gauntlet that he used to summon demons. Within that was an AI named Burrows, who was sort of like your navigator. In this game, Dogda takes the place of the navigator. Um, so sometimes when you bring up your menu, your character will look into his little smartphone and say, Dogda! So uh, this game, like like I was saying, it's uh, structurally very similar to Shin Megami Tensei 4. It has some improvements for sure. One of the biggest things that we already uh, drew attention to is the fact that the overworld map is not a total... Cluster screw of nothingness. <laughs> yep. uh, you can actually see where you're going. Places are labeled. It's nice. It's still got the the classic Shin Megami Tensei, not Persona, but like Shin Megami Tensei map system where you're just a little, you almost look like a chess piece. Yeah. Just wandering, yeah. Like very, very minimal detail wandering around, which is cool. I think it makes, it, it kind of makes a big scale. Uh, the map feels. Expansive. It feels like Tokyo is actually that large of a place when you're wandering around as this tiny little dot on it. So, um, because Apocalypse is sort of iterative, it doesn't have you know it's not totally revolutionary. It's not like a brand new game from top to bottom. What it does do is sort of create the game that Shingami Tensei 4 could have been in terms of gameplay while fleshing out the story. Because one of the things that I I mean I love Shingami Tensei 4. But one of the things that I didn't like about it was that the story is kind of minimalistic and not in the way that Nocturne was. Because I feel like I know that Rob, you're not a huge fan of Nocturne, but um.
0: well, well, I, I, okay, so you're right. I, I think Nocturne. I, I said this to a friend the other day. So, Derek, please forgive me. <laughs> no, Nocturne's storytelling technique is very Dark Souls. It was Dark Souls before Dark Souls. Like not telling you everything that's going on. It's it's very minimalistic, but also very subtle. And how it was told. I liked that aspect of Nocturne. What I didn't like was getting my teeth kicked in over and over again, yeah. and also the the brutal nature of the demon fusing, which Shimogami Tensei Four went a long way to kind of mitigate. Mm-hmm.
1: So Shimogami Tensei Four, one of the things that that it you know it, it had this story that was pretty easy to follow and not very ambiguous, but at the same time, a lot of the characters didn't get a ton of development, like the The people who who are ostensibly your party members in Shin Megami Tensei four the other samurai are just kind of there and they're a little flat they don't um they're not like totally one dimensional because in typical Shin Megami Tensei fashion like in four, you choose whether you want to side with the sort of the the ideology of chaos or the ideology of law or neutral, which ends up being the the kind of canon route but so, so I like how in Shimangami Tensei Four the character the chaos guy isn't just like some crazy warmongering weirdo. He's he just basically believes that uh, the, the only way to create a good world is to do so via strength. So so four um I'm trying to say is that four didn't have awful characters, they just didn't really get fleshed out a ton. Uh Shimangami Tensei Four Apocalypse totally flips that on its head because it has a cast of something like six characters who are always with you beyond a certain point. I mean, some may come and go, but they're, they're people who are with you for the whole journey, and they're constantly bantering, and a lot of them have really different perspectives. Like, if you recall, if you played SMT4, one of the first samurai in the game's name is Navar. He's kind of this, like, schleppy, uh, totally high-up-his-own-ass guy who thinks that he's better than everybody else, and he dies a really inglorious death off-screen and has never really heard from again. Um, and shipping that into the Fort Apocalypse, he's back as a ghost who haunts the main character, and he's one of your party members. So it's it's cool to see him because I didn't really think much of him in the first game because there wasn't much to him. And then here he is here he is now as this fully fleshed out character who's constantly commenting on whatever the events are at hand. So it it very much takes inspiration from the Persona uh, line of games in that it has this like an increased uh, focus on cast and characterization.
0: Um, okay. It's also really cool because the the cast of Shin Megami Tensei Four is still in the game. And now they're kind of like down-to-earth nature as the straight man characters to like your cast of crazy people, like crazy people misfits. That now works really well. Yeah, it does. That's, the, you know, it, that's so smart. It is so smart that they did that.
4: That almost feels like Persona 2 Eternal Punishment to me. Because in Persona 1, your cast is this reporter and four high school students and then in the eternal punishment the follow-up in a sort of alternate version of the first game your cast is that reporter but uh um three npc npcs that were sort of there in persona one, in in the first one but are now your characters and the high schoolers from persona 1 i'm sorry from persona 2.1 are uh are sitting around in the world that's that's a neat interpretation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I really
1: like it. That's a great think, point, Rob, about them playing it as sort of like the the straight counterpart.
4: Um, now I haven't played SMT4 or Apocalypse, obviously. Would you, if, if going in cold, would you recommend I go straight to I go straight to Apocalypse or do no. four first? No, and then I do four first, and then Apocalypse if I like four.
0: I, 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 know they've marketed this game as saying you can play it if you're a newcomer and you, technically you can because the whole <laughs> idea of a post-apocalyptic to- Tokyo is pretty easy to understand. But then like the Eastern Kingdom of Mikado is going to completely like throw you for a loop. The main antagonists for uh, Shin Megami Tensei 4 show up. You're going to have no idea what their point is. You need to play for before you play Apocalypse. I, I really don't care how much marketing material they put out there. You,
4: I, you I follow on Twitter, so I've gotten some of that.
0: Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, that, that's nice for them to say that, but I, I think we need to play the original. <laughs> like, but, but they're full of it. No, I, I, I think no, they're... it's it's not full of it. I just I think that they're not. I, I would take a step back and realize that a lot of people are going to have very serious questions about who people are. And you're also going to miss out on all those great connections. Like mm-hmm. You're going to miss all that stuff.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like uh, somebody was asking me recently. They were like, oh, I want to play a Persona game, but all I have is a 3DS. Can I play Persona Q? And I was like, well, uh... you could, but I I wouldn't really recommend it because you're you're going to have all these personalities thrown at you with no actual development up to the point where they are currently behaving. And even then, I think Persona Q totally butchers the shit out of all the characters from Persona 3 and 4, but that's yeah. neither here nor there. Uh, so Apocalypse, just a, I know we're, we're taking a lot of time talking about each game today and we have plenty to talk about. So a couple other things about Apocalypse. I know Rob's going to touch on something in just a minute with the uh, balance of the game, but yep. the, uh, <laughs> the partner system, uh, because there is a cast of, of colorful characters in this one. You can actually select one to act as a partner, like as a fifth party member. Normally you just have yourself and your uh, three demons with you, but you can act, You can have a partner now, and the partners have their own AI pattern depending on each person. So Asahi, the first uh, character, your, your childhood friend, uh, her thing is she heals. So she can heal you at the end of your turn automatically. And it's really nice to just have like that little extra bit of cushioning, I think helps make the game feel a little bit more fair. Uh, especially because I, I in shimming I and mean, Gum Intensive games, I'll often get down to a point where it's like, oh, I'm about to die, and one heal could be the difference between me winning this battle and losing, and so it's nice to have a partner that can jump in and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, the AI is not perfect or anything like that, but it's cool to have a variety of options available to you,
3: yeah. and it Navar- kind of
1: fosters <laughs> a stronger bond.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, like, Navar, you've already used doping, please stop doing it over and over again. Like, yeah.
1: It, it, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, Yeah, so the partner system's cool. Um, Rob, what do you think about the way
0: the game is balanced?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I caught that hysterical when we we started
4: recording.
0: Oh, dear. Um, Brace yourselves. Well, it's not brace yourself. Yeah, it is. Um, I I don't know if my review will be out uh, in time for the podcast going up. We're going to try to have a quick turnaround time here. Um, I was ready 35 hours into this game to say it was my game of the year. I was having an absolute blast with it. it yes, I forgot about Sheeran the Wanderer. I started playing this. I was in love with the cast. I was in love with the characters. The game is challenging but very fair. Like, it, it it will kick your teeth in. You will die in a random encounter if you're not careful. But it's it's just so fair, and you're always playing off the weaknesses of the enemies. I was just having a ball with it. Then something changed. Uh around the time you can get the first set of endings in the game, I'm using air quotes right now, the first time you can make a choice and end the game abruptly, uh, please do it. Uh, because <laughs> what follows is a 10-hour slog where all the good things we just brought up about characterization, story, and fun gameplay is just gone. Like, you are now in two super linear... Somehow linear because that last dungeon is a train wreck, but it's still linear in how you need to progress through it. Two super linear, dull, boring, monotonous dungeons. The bosses start to do the SMT thing that I thought we were over, where if you do certain skill combinations to try to put yourself at a tactical advantage, they just start hitting you with almighty spells to kill you super fast. So you have to play the game the way it wants you to. The difficulty spike at the end of this game is just unnecessary. I have serious questions about how many people were able to beat this game for review without turning it down to easy, because it's it's unreasonable. Well, not
1: not even just the turning it down to easy, just the the length. Because uh, I know that the review review embargo for this game went up about five day, four or five days before it came out, and there yep. were reviews up you know that day, and I was like. You guys, we only got review copies a week ago.
0: Right? Yeah, I mean, and some people, you know, I, I get it. You know, it's some possible, freelancers yeah. can get it done. I, I I, got Bloodborne done in, like, four days. Like, I I know, but, like, this game gets so soul-crushingly hard and monotonous. Like, the last dungeon in this game, it, it, you know, I, I was going to put it in the show notes, but I don't want to ruin people on it. I, I don't want to spoil people. Like, the last dungeon in this game is, is like, a joke. Like like somebody just sat down and said, You know those old dungeons from like Fantasy Star two that were just filled with teleporters and you have no idea where you're going? Let's make one of those. It took me three days to get through this last dungeon. I wasn't gaining any experience because I hit the level cap and apparently DLC will come out in the next two weeks that will eliminate the level cap. I needed that now, god damn it. I can't recruit any of the demons in the final dungeon, so I'm just fighting meaningless battles for three days with no advancement on my characters. And to top it all off, I thought 4 was difficult, but I don't think 4 got unreasonable in the last couple boss battles. This game, I you have to put together a perfect party or you're just going to get wiped out. Like, it is just insane. I... I loved this game, guys, and then I got to the end, and it just annihilated me. Like, the last ten hours of this game, I did not have any fun. It was a chore, and I just wanted to get it done.
1: That being said, I still, I mean, I obviously haven't gotten that far yet. I still think it's a fantastic game up to the point where i played. Uh, so don't let that deter you from trying it altogether, but I think it's wise to sort of mentally fortify yourself for the I, last ten hours.
0: It, it feels like padding. It feels like they yeah. had a 30, they had a 35-hour game, which is short-ish by modern RPG standards, but like back in the NES days, like 35 hours was great. Like Chrono Trigger, you can beat in 20, 25 hours, like, and I adore that game. But it, it feels like they just said, you know what, we need like 10 more hours of gameplay, and somebody was sitting there going, yeah, but we don't have anything else – Nah, just make some crazy dungeons and everything will be fine. All the story and the characterization is gone, too. So there, I didn't have any incentive. I didn't want to know what happens next. I was just like, oh, really? Okay. I mean, you can kind of guess with this series what the final boss is. And, like, at that point, I just didn't care. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think I was fair in my review. I still I, – I, I can – give this game a huge recommendation if you finish it when it gives you the first opportunity to do it. But uh, it, to me, it's just a masochistic slog for the last 10 hours. And I just don't understand why they needed to do that. It, it feels the way people describe Nocturne or digital devil saga two to me. Yeah. Right.
4: That I think that might be part of it because uh, a lot of fans of SMT games are sort of RPG gluttons for punishment. Yeah. And and a, and a lot and I mean you go on some corners of the internet and you mention I don't know prefer, preferring Persona to Nocturne they'll call you a baby because you can't play a, a, a grown up RPG. I'm wondering if this really brutal end game is squarely aimed at that audience that wants a super challenging brutal. RPG dungeon experience that maybe nece- you didn't necessarily want.
0: That that could be, uh, Derek. I uh, I want to get Derek's opinion on this. I never felt like Shin Megami Tensei 4 got brutal. I I would say Shin Megami Tensei 4 was tough, like tough but very fair.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it was hard, but I, I got to a point like it, I had enough options available to me at any given time that I didn't you know feel totally stuck. Uh, at least not towards the end. Of, like towards the end of four, I feel like it, get, it got easier as you went. Because yeah. you got more and more powerful abilities.
0: This, I, I will be very interested. I, Derek, I cannot wait to have you back on this show for our next episode. <laughs> you no, know, because I want to, this is one of those moments where like, am I the complete outlier on this? Like, am I the one who was like putting up their hand saying that this was really hard and I am just completely wrong? Yeah, I'm, I'm, try- I'm trying to remember, Jackie's in the room with me right now. But there there was something that I was mentioning, like a game or a movie where I was like, oh, it was Fallout. Where I said, like, Fallout 4, like, I was pretty critical on that game when it came out. And, like, six months later, people are saying, yeah, it wasn't really all that good and didn't really expand it. I'm sitting there going, yeah, but there were a bunch of nines and tens saying that this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Like, was I, that makes you feel like you're on an island. But then, you know, internet being what it is, it kind of turns around. And I don't know. I, maybe I'm completely in the wrong here, but I will well, be have- interested to get another opinion.
1: I have seen the maps for that dungeon. I went on to a, a Japanese <laughs> wiki and looked them up and I was like, Jesus,
0: three days, why? three days with that dungeon. Like I, I, I did not enjoy any of that final dungeon. And I know there's some, there, Jackie's shaking her head at me right now because she had to deal with some swearing. Um, Maybe I said,
1: it would have taken you
4: less than three days if you were actually physically trapped in that dungeon.
0: Maybe, uh, but like, and the, what also sucks is there's some really good armor in that dungeon, and I have no idea where it is because I can't speak Japanese. Oh, you and know what? I just don't care.
1: I need to ask you a question really quick. How did you build your character?
0: Magic, pure yeah, magic.
1: That's what I always do. So this time I went, I went full gun,
0: like full. I decks. think you're going to have a hard goddamn time. <laughs> I too. already. I th- I think you are so screwed. Well. <laughs> you You get you get so this is the other thing, like so the whole game is built around taking advantages of weaknesses and stuff, but eventually your characters and the bosses just gain the ability to pierce through any resistances that you might have, so that just throws all of the like planning out the window it's like, well, this guy's gonna hit me with fire attacks that pierce through me, no matter what, so it doesn't matter that I bring a demon that is resistant to fire. It doesn't matter. Like, that really, uh, that felt cheap. And I know people complained in 4, and maybe this gets to what Mike was saying about the artificial difficulty and making it, you know, really, really tough. I know people complained in 4 because if you went with null physical and null uh, magical, like, debuffs on, or buffs on all your characters, you could basically win every fight in the game. Like, the second you got those two skills, the game was basically over with the exception of, like, one or two bosses. This feels like they directly tried to address that, but then it makes those skills useless after a certain point in the game. And that really sucks if you've been building that way. Like, I I don't know what's going to happen to you, Derek. Maybe, maybe you'll run over this game and just be like, wow, Rob is just, you know, what a wuss. He can't you know, handle I think,
1: this. I mean, I believe that it's hard. I just don't know if it's going to be I don't, be experience think,
4: I don't really think I
0: can really prepare hurt. you for how hard this got.
4: I saw that image of the final dungeon because you shared it before we started recording, and I am perfectly willing to believe everything you say about this difficulty in the
2: end game. Yeah, that I think our draws all dropped when we saw that. Yeah.
0: And now imagine doing that without a map.
2: <laughs> <laughs> how? How? <laughs>
0: So
4: you don't get a mini-map on the bottom screen or you, anything? You
0: get a mini-map, but you don't know where the teleporters go to, so you're basically doing it by memory and just oh. process oh, so of have, elimination. So
4: you have like a mini-map of the one room you're in or something.
0: You, you have a mini-map that doesn't show you nearly enough of the, the map. You can kind of cycle around, but it comes down to process of elimination. Like, oh, okay, goody. I didn't do this teleporter, so now I'm gonna go over here. Uh, it, it just sucked. Like Did it, it get to the point where you had to, like, craft it out? Like, no, physically? I... I, I was able to kind of figure it out because it is it is still surprisingly linear. Like, there is one path through this dungeon. It's just a cacophony of go here, do this. Also, keep in mind that that map does not show all of the gates that you need to eliminate either, which only you can only break from one side of the gate. So have fun with that to create shortcuts. Mm-hmm. It, it's just... Uh, There's probably somebody who is in the basement of their parents' house right now going, I have waited my entire life for a dungeon like that. And that's great, dude. (laughs) I love you, and I am glad that you got the dungeon you want. Me, I did not sign up for this.
1: Awfully pejorative, sir.
0: No, but, like, I did not sign up for that. Like, the game had not done that. And so for it to come at... It, it would be like if Dark Souls all of a sudden threw a rhythm game in the middle of it. Like, I didn't sign Whoa, up for I might like it in that case. That. Possibly. <laughs> if, it was, if it was like Crypt of the Necrodancer, I might be down with that. But, like, it, it just feels so out of place and it feels anachronistic considering how far this series has come to become approachable and still tough. I, I think...
2: A, yeah. What about the the ending after All That Madness? Is, it, is there any... Is there any um, worth or any redeeming uh the,
0: all that the,
2: crap?
0: The ending I got was Friendship is Magic. And and that was cool, and I know you can get a much more, like, darker-toned ending, which I wish I had gotten, but the fact was that the optional boss is to get that ending I could not beat. So I was like, wow, I really want to see that ending, but I guess I suck too much and I can't get it, so...
1: Hey, at least the cast is pretty fun. And there's a character <laughs> named... There's a guy named Hallelujah.
0: Yes, there is, and he's awesome. <laughs> and there's also a queen of the fairies who blasts people with a shotgun. So She's again, too. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to attack this game. I really do love it, but I just, I can't. It, it feels like another game got attached to it, and maybe that will make some people happy. But I think that if you, if you've come to the Shin Megami Tensei series a little late like I have, I think this game's epilogue is going to drive you up a wall. It is everything that intimidated the crap out of me when it came to Nocturne. Ratcheted up to eleven. I feel like I could beat Nocturne now. Like I'm like I've seen I've seen the seventh layer of hell. I'm not that worried anymore. Like bring in the it seventh on.
4: because I thought. But what if Nocturne goes down to the ninth circle?
0: Oh, is there a ninth? Oh god, it's it's,
4: it's nine okay. in in Inferno at
0: least. What if Persona Five gets this hard? What if Persona Five has a dungeon like this?
1: It'll it'll probably have something like that that's optional. I can't imagine that. I think Persona 5 Golden Fest might have a dungeon like that. Ooh, okay. There you go. Persona don't. 5 Crimson. No. Persona oh, yeah. 5
0: Crimson
2: Golden Fest. The answer. If I can have it on my Vita or my Vita, if there's ever another. There won't be.
0: I don't be, think but. the UI could. I, I don't think the Vita could handle that UI. Like it. it it's just too much. I
4: don't think so. I can handle the UI. After four random battles, I'd faint.
0: Uh, I. It's I, so I will. So pretty it is busy. That, That's the other thing I wanted to briefly mention with Apocalypse. It still has the absolutely sublime presentation. It is, in terms of like handheld RPGs, it does everything right with its pop up menus, with its map design. Like, you can tell it was made for the 3DS, and I love it for that.
1: Yeah, the actual graphics are pretty dated. Like the visual, yeah. the character models and the environmental textures and stuff are pretty dated. But the actual, the UI is fantastic. And you know how I'm a slut for a good UI. So.
0: Yep, we all are. So I want to move away from Shin Megami Tensei Four, not just because I want to hear about Dragon Quest VII, but also because my wife was kind enough to bring me dinner downstairs so I could keep podcasting. And th- this pasta looks very, very good. So I am going to mute myself, not because I am not interested in Dragon Quest VII, but because we have two wonderful special snowflakes here to talk to us about it,
1: it's funny because you were leading that campaign train for so long about how you couldn't wait for DQ Seven to come out, but then you got Apocalypse a week before, so it kind of and, and, and,
0: and I loved Apocalypse and I, I loved Apocalypse, but now I am I'm ready for a Dragon Quest. So Nick, Mike, am I going to like Dragon Quest Seven? It is absolutely. Great.
4: It has been five and a half years since we've had a traditional Dragon Quest in English. So I was I was a little thirsty for another one, and I got it, and I love it.
5: See, as I said in my preview, this is my first time with a Dragon Quest game, and I kind of feel like it's a good entry point.
4: Um, I don't, but keep going.
5: See, that's the thing. You keep telling me that. Yeah. I, I think the, the way in which the story is structured is that you're playing through these vignettes. You're, you know, building an entire world back from, you know, the ground up, essentially, as you unleash these continents from the past. And it's throughout these individual stories that the game, you know, has its narrative. And I think that's very smart. I think... It's something I haven't necessarily seen done a lot in a video game before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like that structure. And it's a lot less intimidating than having to go in with, you know, hey, there's this big epic battle, there's this you have to keep track of. You know, I hate to throw this title under the bus, but it's like how Final Fantasy 13 introduced 15 terms that made no sense. And it got so overwhelming with the little C and everything. You don't have that with this. It's more streamlined. It, something that
1: I get from that is uh, because Dragon Quest Seven is known for being one of the longest RPGs ever. The PlayStation One version being a hundred hours uh, plus, and that's that's no exaggeration. I never uh, I played maybe a couple hours of Dragon Quest Seven, but I sure did watch a friend over several months play through almost all of it when I was uh, a lot younger, and so I he sure did rack his time up into the hundred plus hours. So three is supposedly more streamlined, but even so, I think having the approach of the story split into a lot of these vignettes makes it a little bit more palatable. Like you don't necessarily if you're gonna be playing this game for so long, it's nice to have stories that sort of build up and resolve themselves on a smaller scale so that you don't forget seventy hours later exactly what was going on. Well exactly
4: but you say that, but I, I think that you also inherently describe the structure of almost every Dragon Quest game. Because most of the games in the series have these self-contained vignettes as you just move through the world, like serving the greater story. It's, and even though Dragon Quest Eight, for example, has the whole world map there at the beginning, you're still going town to town, dungeon to dungeon, resolving smaller conflicts before you can get to the next one. But Dragon Quest Seven does it really explicitly in the way that Nick described um, earlier, where you have to find fragments to literally revive islands and build the world brick by brick and island by island and it's it, it's neat to have a visualization of those dragon quest vignettes but it, i don't think it's that di- different from other games in the series uh, where, where they have these you know self-contained stories and a larger story starts to take shape and by the end you're fighting a demon lord and it's always demon War- lord uh, and but with the entire story in greater context and the sort of uh, some of the story is is well, the story is greater than just the sum of its many stories, and that's something I love about Dragon Quest. However, I don't think Seven is the best starting point for it because in, in uh, as we've alluded to a couple times already, it's the longest one. It's the PS1 version was a hundred hours. Uh, the, uh, in the room where you you know, construct the tablets that summon the islands, I think there's 18 of those. And once you rebuild the world and do those 18, I think you're around the game's halfway point is what I was led to believe. I, I should mention, I've played every Dragon Quest game except for 7 and 10. So, And I, I, like Derek, I played the first few hours of the PS1 version before getting distracted by other games. So this is my first time playing 7. But I have played 1 through 6 and 8 and 9. Uh, and, and but because... 7 is so long and is a little more complex than other Dragon Quest games and has, I think, slightly more boring characters than a few other Dragon Quest games, I would not recommend it as a first entry. But if you like Dragon Quest, this is good Dragon Quest, and it is literally the most Dragon Quest, just by quantity (laughs) alone.
5: That's something I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on. Do you feel like it's overstaying its welcome? Because you and I are at around the same amount of hours in and around the same part in the story.
4: Yeah, I'm, a, I'm and between, I'm between 35 and 40 hours in.
5: I'm, and, I'm uh, at about 31 already. Yeah.
4: Mm, I'm, yeah. I'm a, that's I'm a shocking, crazy, right? I'm a crazy person.
2: You're
4: I, crabby. I, i be bravely second in a week, <laughs> but, uh, uh but, yeah, yeah, I'm keep going. We're we're both around the 35-40ish hour mark and I just finished the scenario in Rucker and Hubble.
5: That's exactly where I am right now. Okay. <laughs> um even with, you know, 41 hours in, I'm not disenchanted by the game at all. It's you know, through the the, the story system, through the vignettes. It's refreshing every time I go to a new island. You know, to a new place in the past. I'm interested in what's going to go down, who I'm going to meet, you know, the boss I'm going to battle. It, it doesn't feel repetitive, at least not as much as I thought it would.
4: No, I'm I'm not fatigued by it yet either. I mean, I have a little bit of tolerance for games like this, but uh, the it. it the the area to area it is new and interesting and satisfying and the um and the you know the the character building is is good and gets better once you get uh once you get to unlock the job system around island eight and I think I should we should mention there's eighteen of these islands and I think the uh, Hubble is like the this fifteenth or sixteenth island I'm I think I'm not I'm not sure I haven't counted and uh I, no I'm not bored by it yet uh and And that might be in part because I, w- I was expecting this to be a very long game going in even though I had not nearly got it, made this made it this far when I tried the p s one version but uh, again i mean i've i've played most of the dragon quest games i I think this is good dragon quest but i I don't like the characters quite as much and this i don't like this i don't think like the story is maybe as dramatic and fun as my favorite ones which are five and eight.
1: I'll agree with you there about the characters. I think that the seven probably has some of the weakest in terms of also design, but um, personalities seem a little weak to me. And but the thing is, though, you get so much out of the party chat uh, feature. Yes,
3: you, you do.
5: You, you press
4: you, you B do. a lot if you play this game because uh, B will have one of your party members comment on current events, and that's how you get a lot, of, a lot out of them.
5: And there's always Maribel who has the best response.
4: She's. It's always Maribel that has the most irritating response.
3: <laughs> she, she's the best. I, I, love her.
4: I, I don't like Maribel. I'm, uh, I, I'm, on, t- I'm on team Ruff right now. He, he, was, he was Gabo in the, uh, in the PS1 version. Mm-hmm.
5: He's, he's great, too. I, I like every character that I've met so far. But that being said, you know, you're not really... There's not a lot to them. You know, not, certainly not in the sense of, you know, a title like Final Fantasy um they're no, pretty they're, much just one-liners you know no, the-
4: yeah they, they have personality but not a ton of depth but they're um i think they're they're most of the ma- of the character designs in Dragon Quest i find at least appealing but again i've i've already played this game 35 hours and i'm not nearly attached to these characters the way i am to those in other games but but it's not it's not bad i don't think the characters are a ma- major weakness they just have very little main story involvement. I just finally got a story moment with uh, with one of them right after the uh, right after the Rucker and Hubble quest. But it I, I, again, I, I this is good Dragon Quest. There's a lot of it, but it's I don't think it's my favorite. But I am very happy to be playing it because I missed Dragon Quest, and this is still a very good game. Mm-hmm. But oh, uh, and, and Nick uh, and Derek, I guess. Uh, um, Derek, have you gotten to Altrades yet?
1: Oh no, not even close.
4: Okay, I think it's I think it's the eighth island or maybe seventh. But uh, one thing that is I don't love about this game is that it takes a while to get access to the job system, mm-hmm. and it, it serves a story role. Like you you have to you, you know you have to make it pretty far in the story to get to the job system. There's a whole quest surrounding uh, saving the tar- Tower of Dharma or Altrade's Trades Hour or whatever Altrade's Abbey that's what it's called in this one. Uh, and and the story stuff around it is cool and interesting, and it's justified in when it, in when you get to it. But I, I wish it came at, like, the, the, the eight-hour mark instead of the 15-hour mark
5: is all. See, I disagree completely. I think at that point is when it really refreshes itself through its job system. And it, it sort of provides, you know, when you're running a marathon, you get tired to a point, and then you... You know, make a pit stop, drink some Gatorade, and, you know, you're refueled. That's a very bad metaphor, but you get the point of what I'm saying. <laughs> you get the gist. No, so I, I get I it. It's coming in at the 20-hour mark is right where I would have been like, okay, this is just too much of the same. Then you unlock the job system, and it's like, okay, now there's so much more to do that I'm looking forward to the next 80 hours. Mm-hmm. I
4: the thing is I really like job systems and I I want to start tinkering with job systems as soon as I play a game that has one like I, I mentioned I played bravely second earlier this year uh by the ninety minute mark or so you have five jobs to play with and then that you get a trickle of them throughout the rest of the game until you end up with uh, I think thirty or. Maybe more than 30, but it's like in Dragon Quest 7. You get, uh, you have to do a quest to re- basically save all trades Abbey, and once you save it, you can you get this job system that has about I-, I think it grants you access to about 20 normal jobs and then 30 monster jobs, which are a whole nother mess. Uh, but it, again, it it is an injection of new gameplay interest and new visual interest because you're uh, in this. I think for the first time. Oh, okay. The first, the only time other than Dragon Quest three, uh, changing jobs changing changes your character's appearance, which is not Love true. Love uh, Yeah, it's not true in uh, in Dragon Quest six or nine because uh, six they all characters always look the same, and nine they take on the appearance of their equipment. But mm-hmm. in seven they in seven it does the Final Fantasy five uh, bravely default thing where everyone changes costumes for their uh, for their jobs, and it is adorable. And they dress up as a sheep when they are shepherds.
3: That is
0: awesome.
4: Yep. Yeah. Why uh, am
0: playing this? This is,
4: this is a, <laughs> a fun amazing. cute RPG. The, the jobs are fun, and I and I love unlocking new ones. And because there's there's ten basic ones, then seven intermediate ones, and then three super jobs. Uh, super jobs, and you can read about them all in game once you once the abbey is rescued, and you can and you talk to some NPCs.
5: And you have to do a combination of mm-hmm. basic jobs and intermediate jobs to unlock the three as you know, as you said, yeah, the it, super it's, the jobs.
4: As, it's the same as Dragon Quest VI, but with a but a little bit more complex and interesting. I I think just on the I haven't explored all of it yet, but on the surface, Seven's job system looks better than Six's.
5: How do you feel about uh Monster Meadows and the Haven and the new <laughs> randomized dungeons?
4: Um well, okay, the Haven is something that was in the PS1 version. I did unlock it in the PS1 version. I got a little past that. And um, it, it's nice. It, it, it's, it's a good side quest where you um, you recruit NPCs in every town in the game that maybe you are a little dissatisfied with their life and send them to this new town that you founded from a, the ruins of a town that that sort of went through bad times in the past. And so you build this town of NPCs, and the more NPCs are in it, the more it grows. And that's a very fun little side quest that you could probably compare to collecting 108 stars of destiny or building Township in in Breath of Fire or something. Township!
1: It's a a town and a ship! Yep.
4: (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, Breath of Fire 2 is alright. But anyway, um, I, I think it's a good side quest. Monster Meadows stuff is neat, but I haven't gotten too deep into it. I uh you can recruit monsters at random uh or semi-randomly by, by finding them and send them to the uh to this monster meadow area which is unlocked way later than than you can first visit it, which is which confused me a little at first, because it appears as an as like a spot in the middle of the ocean on a map until you revive the island that uh that surrounds it. But um and you send these monsters on little missions to collect tablets for you and then these you can jump into these tablets to uh through a uh tablet platform that's similar to when you unlock islands to uh play through a randomly generated dungeon that can uh that you can use to level up in and get pretty decent rewards in oh,
1: so, so so the the randomly generated dungeon sorry to interrupt you but you can actually go on. into those as a as a party i thought those uh I was I must be confusing that with the thing for monsters that you can send into.
3: Yeah, the
4: thing for monsters you send them into is just a cave and then they come out with a tablet and the tablets themselves your party jumps into. But okay. unlike but unlike uh, Dragon Quest 5 which where you recruit a team of monsters Pokemon style or 6 where you can recruit specific monsters or even 8 where you can summon monsters that you've recruited, you you don't actually fight alongside monsters in this game unless you use, unless you use a monster class by consuming a monster heart, which is Another mess that I've barely touched into and seems way more, way deeper and more complicated than the human job system. But uh... it, yeah. it
5: is because I've I've used a uh, heal slime heart.
4: That's a and... good, that, that's exactly what the one I use because <laughs> I, I thought some backup healing would be great without having to go into priest again.
5: Um, I I'm really sucked into the monster meadows. I find myself uh I made rough a uh, a monster masher, actually, just so I had an easier time recruiting the monsters. Mm-hmm. And I just got a Metal Slime Knight like an hour ago, and I am, that is the highlight of my week. <laughs> so I am very invested in this little goofy, you know, side activity. Um, my only complaint with the game is that the dungeons are just so boring. There, it's just a pathway, two stairs, and then you reach either the top or the bottom. Sometimes there's a it. side
4: path that leads to a treasure chest.
5: Right, exactly.
4: But yeah, on the if the spectrum for dungeon complexity goes from say quest sixty four up to that final dungeon that was giving Rob conniptions, this is <laughs> this is closer to the lower half yeah. of that
1: spectrum. Knitious the first is a great word. and last Quest 64 reference you'll hear. Always.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we will, I promise to our listeners, we will never do that again.
1: I
4: apologize um, already. I, I already regret mentioning that. But anyway, um, yeah, the, the dungeons are not um, are not terribly complex or interesting, and they use some of the same music that Dragon Quest has been using for du- in dungeons for decades. But uh, I, I don't think that's a, that's a problem. I mean, the, the, the fun of this game is is more just seeing your characters grow and seeing and rebuilding the world piece by piece. And it gives you a very satisfying feeling of, you know, just watching meters increase,
5: I guess. But I'll agree. It's definitely more of a nitpick than an actual problem.
4: Yeah, I'm not going to defend the, the dungeons as being other than boring.
1: If I have a nitpick, it's that the UI is dated as hell, especially if I'm playing, which I am. No
5: cursor memory.
1: Yeah, There's I'm playing theme- Apocalypse and this side-by-side, side, and I'm going from super sleek UI, which I know they're like totally thematically different, but a really sleek modern UI to this like busted-ass, black-and-white Dragon Quest UI. It's like, damn.
4: There's cursor memory for the final step, when you finally sort into spell or ability and offensive-defensive other, but that, that's still not... That's not great. Uh, they, there's a lot of modern amenities to combat that this game does not have. Uh, it does add something that was not in the PS1 version, I think, where you can use a menu option to uh, find out where you are in the current story and a hint to what to do next, and also the location of the next uh, fragments of tablets for islands that to find.
5: Which so is, glad you brought that up because yeah, is, I was going to say that it just—it's it, wonderful. You yeah, know? It's, it's, like,
4: it's quite helpful, and it, and it doesn't totally give it away. It'll, it'll say uh, something like, oh, go to this town in the present. It's in a building. Instead of... But uh, but ha- not having that would have made finding these fragments a nightmare.
5: It literally would have changed how I viewed the game.
4: I it, I, de- I don't know exactly when it would have happened, but I, I would have hit a story roadblock where I had no idea what to do and would have to like sheepishly ask on a forum where the next tablet was. But luckily that's not the case because they have this very neat um, fragment finder feature.
5: Well, and, you know, you can just read a recap of the story in case, you know, it's been a couple of days since you've played and you don't really remember too much of what has happened. Just go back and refresh your memory.
0: I, I think that's one of the reasons why, like, I, I, I'm maybe one of the only people on the podcast right now. I Maybe am the only one who plays a lot of Western RPGs. And when I played... Caitlin like, is too. Oh, well, well, well Caitlin... I, I do. Okay, well, then I was wrong.
4: Robert, I, all, I, all of us play Western RPGs.
0: But what I mean is, like, in JRPGs, you typically don't have to worry about getting massively lost. Like, it's usually a, a roundabout idea which way you want to go. In Shin Megami Tensei 4, there was like, oh, you need to talk to this one guy in this one building in this one area to keep the story going. Like, that was absolute madness. In Divinity Original Sin, you can run into those same problems, and I think some people view the whole quest marker thing as a four-letter word, and I don't think it is. Like, I think that's okay to have it there. Like, I also get the argument that in, like, Skyrim, you're just chasing that little arrow all over the place to keep the story going. I get that. But there is something to be said for some goddamn direction in a game. Like, please don't make me just, like, run around and have no idea where I'm going or what NPC I need to talk to to keep the story going. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I I think maybe that plays in a little bit with some of the, like, you know, oh, this was for freaking casuals. And it's like, no, it's to make it pleasant. And it's to also make sure that I'm not spending hour after hour trying to find the one dude who's going to tell me where the magic flute is to continue this quest line.
4: Oh, I think one or two Dragon Quest games literally have magic flutes.
0: I am they, not surprised. And they
4: aren't Mozart's magic flute either. But uh, the uh, in this, it's not nearly as obnoxious as chasing around quest markers. Because, I mean, it there isn't a quest marker. And uh, it's just a menu option that you're perfectly welcome to ignore.
0: Yeah. I think that's cool. That's a cool, like, middle ground is if you can ignore it. And, or use it as much as you want, I think that's a really smart decision. That's, that's probably the way it should be, so that way people can get as lost in a game as they want to be, or they can be led around because maybe they got things to do. Maybe they have jobs. Maybe they have lives. There's nothing wrong with that.
4: Right now, my yeah. job is gladiator on my main character, and paladin on love, <laughs> and sage on Sir Mervin.
3: I do
5: want to say, too, that I honestly am getting the feeling that this could be my RPG of the year. It, it's really that
0: good in my eyes. You played Sheeran the Wanderer. Uh,
5: N- no, but I want
3: that so wouldn't badly.
0: It. If he did, that, wow, that game is such so my jam. I want that so badly. You should, and don't listen to a thing that that heathen Derek Hinesberg has <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> Why would I ever listen to Derek? Like that's
5: wow, just, that's
4: wow. A Because he's smart and nice and insightful, and you
0: he does have a sulty, he does have a sultry voice. I mean, it's, it's that's, easy to be That's fair. It's easy because to be. He loves straight.
5: Falcom. I do. Falcom
4: I do. is love. Yeah, Falcom is life.
5: Oh. Yes. We all love Falcom, though. So like, he
4: You literally be have never boy. played an
2: East. Loves game. it more. <laughs> uh, I bought you your first guys.
4: game a few weeks ago.
2: That
5: that's
0: fair. <laughs> I'm not bad. Not bad. So Dragon Quest Seven, it sounds like I'm going to like this game, but maybe there it might be a little too much Dragon Quest. Rob, I, I, will,
1: I will buy you a case of beer if you beat that game before I see you next. Uh,
0: okay, I was going to say I, I will most likely beat it because I do very much enjoy beating video games, but I, I I'm probably going to see you at Magfest. So I, I think will buy you <laughs> a case of
4: beer anyway, Robert and Derek. Oh,
0: thank you. Thank oh,
4: cool. You. I'll take it. Yeah, I,
5: Appreciate I ain't
2: buying that. y'all nothing. I'm right. cheating.
4: No, <laughs> okay. Well, that is a lot, so I'll, you can share a case of beer.
2: I have no taste for alcohol, so I, I won't get you anything, because I don't know what to get. Uh,
0: that's
4: okay, just... All right, so I'll you out. will get paninis. Chocolate get panini. Blackberry Nonsense. Mm-hmm.
2: Dragon
0: Quest Seven. I will play it.
1: Yeah. It is a lot of Dragon Quest, but it is a good lot of Dragon Quest Do we I'm, just want to have that be the RPG fan review? Dragon <laughs> Quest Seven. Rob will play it.
0: Well I'm I'm yes, actually really I'm happy. Done. That was my job. If you check on <laughs> Amazon right now, it is apparently sold out for the next month, oh.
5: uh
0: which Ooh. is a really good sign. Um because again, I I think people need to it sucks, but Square Enix is kind of holding this series hostage right now.
4: Well, a little bit. Sort of. It's it's a little weird. Square Enix is um they let uh they uh okay, hmm, let me slow down. They published four and five on the DS years ago, but then but then sort of like waffled a little bit on pub- publishing the others. So Nintendo ended up publishing six, nine, and this one. Right. And so uh, they're like Square wants Square Enix wants Dragon Quest to be successful, but they don't seem to want to put in a whole lot of money or effort into making it successful. But uh, I mean, we're getting Dragon Quest Heroes one and two, and we got mm. this from Nintendo, and we're Nintendo did. Covers. Nintendo did a very nice thing they've been um they've been uh promoting this game reasonably enough and they even released a uh a, a quickie guide for the first fifteen hours of the game
5: right yeah, uh, it leads you up to the Abbey.
4: yeah yeah right up to where you um the job system unlocks and i I did check it once or twice to just see where the uh, uh when i because I had to speak to you know an nPC and un precisely fun time at one place and I couldn't find them. So uh yeah they they seem to be doing well by Dragon Quest 7 and I like it a lot so far even though I'm, I I think I'm I'm 40ish hours in and maybe barely at the halfway point <laughs> there's still a lot to go
5: It's intimidating but it's it's a good time
0: I'm looking forward to 8 cuz 8 was my first Dragon Quest and I think unfortunately that might have been the best Dragon Quest
4: It's it's terrific. Did you ever get to... I know you played 4 on the DS a while I played,
0: ago. I played 4. I wanted to play 5, but the summer got pretty busy. Okay. Um, I still have 5 and 6 to play. I, I'm i really excited to play 5. 5 seems to be the fan favorite, because I, I know what the story conceit is in that game, and I'm really interested to play it like that. I... I, I I always bring him up, but it's because he's so dear to my heart. But, like, Steven was playing Phantasy Star 4, like, a couple weeks ago, and he was like, God, Rob, this this is your game. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I like JRPGs that are no BS and have quick, awesome battle systems. Like, that is what I want in a game. And that's one of the reasons I liked Apocalypse so much. That's one of the reasons I'm excited for Dragon Quest. Like, if you can get me in and out of combat very fast and give me a strong sense of power progression, like I'm getting stronger, I will play a JRPG for 100 hours.
4: And, and the ds version of 5 is really good it they they add um the, the super famicom version of it only had 3 playable characters in your party at once and for and they ma- and they made grinding a lot they made it a lot easier and a lot less grinding by just making that 4 instead of 3 in the ds version mm-hmm. and uh they added a few small quality of life choices 5 i think is the best ds dragon quest and there's there's 4 of them on the ds so that's uh yeah, that, that's a nice recommendation. And Mike is you,
3: forcing
0: me to play all of them.
4: I'm not forcing you to do anything.
0: Four is but... very, uh, you can beat four in like 20 hours. That wasn't bad at all. Like, I really enjoyed my time with four, and it was a nice, short RPG. It was a classic era RPG that did not have to be 100 hours, which, you know, I'm looking forward to Dragon Quest Seven, but not every game should be 100 hours.
4: I tried uh, all of the Dragon Quest, or I should say Dragon Warrior games on the NES, but 4 was the only one I finished. And, I mean, in my defense, I was maybe seven years old at the time when I tried to play them. But, uh, yeah, uh, 4 is really, really good. They're all good, except for Dragon Quest 2, because that's my least favorite final dungeon sequence in any video game.
0: I have a contender uh, uh, that uh, you <laughs> might have to go up against. <laughs>
4: Sure. I'm not going to argue against that, but uh, Dragon Quest 2 is my least favorite, and 5 and 8 are my two favorites.
0: Cool. All right. Uh, So I think we have some listener mail to go over, Derek. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do we want to keep this to about 20 minutes so then we can stop at 10?
1: Yes, we should do that, because I think most of us have plans.
0: Yes. So
1: we've been getting a good amount of listener mail. Once again, thank you all so, so, so much for doing that. As it turns out, all I had to do was whine about it, and there it is. So, uh, uh, this is dating back a little bit because we haven't, it's been a little while since we've been able to get together and record. And on the last episode, we didn't have time to get to listener mail. So, um, some of these are a little bit lengthier, so we're going to have to keep the discussions a little shorter, but I digress. So, the first one is from uh, Vlad Gusev. He says a number of things. It's a pretty long email, but it starts just by saying, Hi, my name is Vlad. I've been watching, or sorry, following RPG Fan for more than 10 years now. When I first discovered RPG Fan, I didn't used to read your reviews because I barely understood English at the time. I was visiting frequently because you were uploading tons of artwork and concept art for every game. And since I was just starting my illustrator career, it was a valuable resource for me at the time. Now I read almost every review you guys post, and sometimes I read some of the old stuff since I'm constantly playing old generation RPGs. I also enjoy your podcast quite a lot. I like when Rob gets pissy as long as there's somebody to calmly counterweight his argument. It gives some spice to the conversation. True. (laughs) So uh, just going on, uh, he just said he wants to bring attention to something that he notices during the podcast. He says we often talk about gender discrimination in video games, which we do. Uh, He says I'm not opposed to this discussion, but I often find that your commentary on the subject is a bit superfluous and reduced to pointing at discrimination and saying that it's bad, and that's not bringing anything interesting to the table for me to stop and think about. If you guys want to discuss this topic, I would love to see a deep discussion with research arguments of why there were decisions made talking about the mentality of marketing, cultural background, possible solutions. And finally, you guys should record game Game of the year discussions on the podcast, the way giant bomb does, or at least stop mentioning awesome fights you have on the closed forum that (laughs) normal mortals would never read about. So yeah, that's, that's a lot to uh, address uh, in a pretty short amount of time. Um, Caitlin, do you have any particular, uh, way that you want to address that? Because we talked about it a little bit before the show.
2: Um yeah. Um so I get I get what's what you're saying, Vlad. Uh and I mean you're right, a lot of times we do we 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 point out, oh, this this horrible character design or this horrible treatment or blah blah blah. It's just like I don't like it. And yeah, a lot of times that's we we don't really go much farther than that. Um but, I mean, we and maybe we could go a little bit further, but at the same time, it's kind of I don't want to say it's not the focus of the show, although it kind of isn't. I mean, we're not a uh, a podcast about feminism or gender issues, even though it often creeps into our discussion um the The focus and the the style of the show isn't to to have super duper critique and to have you know. Citations to to papers, you know, to various different academic papers. Although, I mean, I, I can whip something I've, up. If, yeah, I've, if,
1: I've written papers about that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that was for, for me. That was much of my focus in college was uh, cause sort of like studying because I I also studied a lot to do with um, video games and sort of like the formation of identity as it's represented in video games. And a lot of that does tie into gender theory and feminist discourse and that kind of stuff. So. These kinds of things are sort of bound to happen in conversations between people like us who are invested in those kinds of issues. And I know that it's kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, there's a lot of negative uh, sentiment surrounding the term social justice warrior, et cetera. And so anytime there's sort of a, a thought process that goes against the great, you know, anytime something could be construed as like, oh, you're trying to take away my right as a straight male to enjoy media that depicts women as sexualized in any way. Like it can get kind of out of hand and turn into this sort of battle between both sides that I I don't think that we're trying to create like, you know, a a volatile sort of environment here for discussion. It's just, it's the kind of thing that we need to draw attention to and we're not going to stop. So uh, it doesn't mean that we're trying to take all the fun out of everything, but I think we would be remiss as people who look at games and with a critical eye, to not at least bring that kind of stuff up.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I know that um, when a lot of this stuff, when a lot of these conversations first started to happen and, and things got very negative, I think it was very easy to kind of listen to the the noise of the Internet. And that goes for both sides. I'm not just saying that one side is doing that versus the other. <laughs> It's easy to to let the noise of the internet kind of sway the argument. I think you see that right now with the current political climate where the things that you'll read on Facebook on both sides probably not entirely true but being repeated as fact. And one of the one of the things I used to hear over and over again was like, you know, Anita Sarkeesian does not point out positive things in gaming culture. And then when you actually sit down and watch her Feminist Frequency YouTube videos, no, she actually does point out positives. And so I think it's, it's easy, and I would agree with the assessment that's, that Vlad has, that sometimes it's easy to point out the mistakes and going, yep, that sucked. And I don't think we let those things go. I think sometimes we we address those and we try to bring up ways that they're, they're good. And I think also we try to bring up uh, good examples. Like, for, for example, something I forgot to bring up on the podcast – I think the female characters in Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse are fantastic and do not fall into the, like, anime swimsuit girl roles that we've seen a lot of right now. Like, I would hold Asahi Nozomi up as fantastic female characters that are not over-sexualized. And I'm like, this is great. I would like some more of this, please. And so that's me saying, like instead of just complaining about it, that is me holding up a good example. And I do think that sometimes we should look for the positives a little yeah. bit. No, I'm definitely really go to guilty of that. Yeah. Definitely
3: I, I, we all that. are. We On this
1: are. podcast in particular, a lot of the time when we have these kind of discussions, it's because something kind of strikes us as off. Right. And, and then we, then we get into a, a conversation about it. So yeah, for sure. Like, I know that I, I probably don't always come with the best examples on this show, and that's on me. Um, it's something that I definitely do try to address. And, I mean, there's I've written, you know, hundreds of articles, uh, not necessarily all focused on, like, feminism and stuff. But, you know, I've written a lot of stuff about video games over many years. And, that, God, this sounds, like, so self-serving. Whatever. I, I bring up good examples <laughs> when I can. But, you know, like, yeah, for sure I'm not always doing it on this show. So it's worth pointing out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we'll try to do a better job of that. I I think that's completely reasonable. And when we see good stuff, you know, we'll point it out. But I think, you know, with that comes the fact that we're also going to point out bad stuff. Like we're going to point out uh problematic things like, you know, there
2: are far more problematic things than
0: there are good, unfortunately. But we have to always remember that we're pointing out those problematic things because we do want to make them better. And having a conversation about them is how, you make things better. And and again, yeah. we're not trying we're not trying to censor anybody. We're not trying to say that you can't enjoy your video. I brought up how much I love Dishonored. That original game has a couple very problematic scenes that are like, I that came across way worse than you guys think it did. And that's a little problematic. And I, I think they heard that. And they've said that they're addressing some of that stuff in the sequel. And, again, it wasn't meant to demonize or crucify anyone. It's just meant to say, you know, hey, did you think that maybe this might have come across like this? And it's like, yeah. And I will say that oftentimes creating that conversation is better than screaming in someone's face. And I, I often, you know, tell my students that instead of screaming in someone's face, hey, you know, this was offensive or I'm upset about it. The the response of creating a conversation and not demonizing each other, that's where really awesome things can happen. So, you know, everybody just take a chill pill, ask questions, you know, be willing to defend your points, be willing to listen to the other side. Civil discourse is an awesome thing that we should continue to do.
1: For sure. I am going to move along here because I still have a few emails to get through and not much time to do it. Do so it. The next, next one is from uh, Nick Calderon. He says, Hey everybody, I'd like to start by saying that I truly enjoy your podcasts and appreciate your honesty and everything you present. Yes, even when it's brutal. I'm going Thank to you. parallel what a lot of your listeners tell you and tell you that I love you guys. I love how you guys can respectfully disagree with each other, how passionate you get about all things nerd culture and how goofy your conversations eventually end up. So his question is, <laughs> this is also so huge. He says, Let's say there exists a clone or self aware android. You are collectively given the task to make sure this person or AI would grow up to be an uber but respectable RPG fan. I don't know why, but
0: okay. uh, respectable which, is awesome.
1: Which RPGs would you make this person or AI play and in what order? Oh my okay. god. I know. Oh my god. Is it hard
3: record an entire
1: separate podcast about
4: this? Uh, yeah, right.
0: We can uh, make it an episode
4: of Retro Encounter. I don't mind. The RPG uh, bot. Yeah.
0: I think there's a couple that we could all agree on. I, th- I think Final Fantasy VI has got to be in there. Uh-huh. Chrono Trigger. Yeah. Th- Chrono Trigger's got to be in there.
2: Xenogears. Mm-hmm. I don't to want to say what for, I'm about for, to say. For an you example
3: of how... how responsible
2: RPG run. fan. How about oh. just the first
1: disc of Xenoge- Xenogears?
2: Okay. Okay, I can, I can get behind that. <laughs>
0: okay. Hey,
1: for the sake of civil discourse, how about we we just have everybody list, like, two?
0: Okay. Yeah, okay. Your, your
1: uh, desert island RPGs.
4: Okay,
0: we're we're taking everything off the table because I'm not having those two games be my my first two. Uh, okay, Derek, go.
1: Oh,
3: F- after you, Rob. You suggested it.
1: Okay, well, as far as modern RPGs go, I mean, I still the 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 game I've scored the highest ever of any review I've written has been Persona for a Golden, simply yeah. because I think. It does the best job of ha, huh, gotcha, Salusi. Yeah. It does the best job of sort of incorporating like it's modern, it's unique. Um, of course, a lot of games have spawned in its wake and done similar things, but it's it's a uh, it's it's still singular, I think, in terms of um, the the overall polish and cohesion of its design, especially for the time that it was made. So that's my first one. Shit, how am I supposed to think of a second one? Because there are so many that I want to I say have that. one. Okay, go ahead.
2: Xenoblade. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. Oh. yeah?
5: Yes. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, yes. I
2: it because, well, it does everything really awesome, but I think uh, what I love about it is it gives you that sort of open world experience with how massive the areas are without sacrificing having a kick-ass single-player uh, uh, story that doesn't necessarily go off the rails and you you forget about it for five hours and then, oh, hey. There's actually a main plot here.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good one. Are we just gonna do like everybody do one and then come around? All right, you're up, Solosi, Go. Uh, okay, well, Derek and Rob
4: chose several of the ones I would have considered. So I'm gonna I'll say uh, Skies of Arcadia. Shout out to our reviews our reviews head Alana.
2: Good choice.
3: I'm gonna, we're is gonna a... not
0: say Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger now. <laughs> we just, oh,
3: wait, I, thought, I thought you were reserved we those two. two? No, All can right. we
0: just put can we just put those two in the basket? Like that that that's a group to Okay,
4: fine. Or <laughs> whatever. Uh Skies of Arcadia is is gorgeous. It has my favorite world map in any RPG. You're in a flying pirate ship that goes between floating islands that are diverse and colorful and beautiful. And uh the this, everything from the main quest to the core characters to the side quests to the turn based combat. I love everything about that game. It's in my top five or ten easily, and to release it. I yeah, I, I that is the oh, game right I on. want to see a, P, a PC re-release more than any other game, yes. and I think I think it's possible. Hey, Sega they Sega's, can do Grandia two, yeah, yeah, Sega's done it for Grandia two and for Valkyria Chronicles, so it's I think it is in the realm of possibility, and I would love to see well, that happen.
1: I think Gung Ho did Grandia too, so I think they'd have oh, to they acquire, the, either Gung, Gung Ho or Game Arts, they'd have yeah. to acquire their rights or something like that. I was equating it with Arcadia because they were both Dreamcast RPGs. Got it, anyway, got
4: it, got it. Yeah,
6: next.
5: Okay, Nick, Nick. I'm, oh god, I'm going to get beaten up in the group chat for saying this. <laughs> Kingdom Hearts too. Well,
4: okay, so, I mean, I know.
5: So, so
4: 20, 20% of us are of, you know, Not even
5: the taste. Stats.
0: Ho- Hold on, hold on, hold on, one sec, hold on, one hey, sec. I like Kingdom Hearts too. No, nope, we're just gonna, okay, uh, we're just gonna do that, and uh, Nick has now been muted.
3: Uh, <laughs> uh, That's all that like, I'm, bruising bruising. I'm say. He's
0: back, he's back, he's back. I, uh, it was comedic timing.
5: <laughs> I have, I'm actually writing a piece now. Uh, about how Kingdom Hearts means so much to me. But I think, objectively, Kingdom Hearts 2 is a really fantastic RPG that has, you know, really positive messages. Uh, It has great world building, great characters, an amazing final boss fight. Uh, I don't know. I I liked it. Platforming is horrific, but aside from that...
1: I like Kingdom Hearts 2. I think it's good.
5: There's a skateboarding minigame, which, you know, totally makes sense.
1: Hey, Trails of Cold Steel 2 has a snowboarding minigame, and you don't have to watch a character die to get to it. Spoilers. <laughs> what, that you don't have to watch somebody die?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. I got you. Uh, who are we looping back around to, Rob oh, or me? Uh,
0: oh, me? Me? Okay. So we, we all agreed that Chrono Trigger and Final Fantasy VI are just in, right? Yeah. Okay. So they're in. Uh, do, do I have to this say? Is,
4: it? This is going way better than the Essential Ten podcast that Retro did a little while ago.
0: Do I have to say anything? Like y'all, y'all know what one of them is gonna are be. Are you
1: serious? <laughs> gonna say Dark Souls?
0: Yeah. It it. Uh, you mean the it, game? It has great atmosphere. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, are you talking about like the most influential game of the past six years? Like uh, the game that has basically created an indie scene, and now people are starting to incorporate every piece of it into every other game. Minecraft Not, is but,
4: an RPG, Rob.
0: But oh, shut up! But not not to mention the fact that it is deep down a very, very good game. Like it is the it is what Castlevania should have become when it switched to 3D. Okay. So, yeah. okay. I would agree with that.
1: All right. So Dark for this, Souls. every I want everybody else to give one more, but we really got to move it along. So uh, I'm just going to settle for the title. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, and I'm up, so I pick Earthbound.
0: Ooh, good one. Good one.
2: All right. Uh, can I don't know if this is cheating. Um Mass Effect.
1: Unless
2: you
5: want me to the one.
0: I think that was fair. That's fair. Okay, that's fine. Yep.
2: Final
5: fine okay.
0: Oh, Nick's is Ooh. 10. Okay. okay.
4: I'm maybe influenced by current events, but I'm gonna say Dragon Quest eight.
0: Yeah. Oh man, oh that's the one. Oh, oh god. Okay. Alright. Oh god. Oh God!
1: Um, it's gonna be impossible. We're always gonna find other stuff.
0: Like, yeah, I know. Yeah.
1: Um, we only have so many slots. This AI can only learn so much.
0: I, I gotta. That put,
1: expand the memory.
0: I might surprise some people. I'm gonna put Fantasy Star Four in there.
1: Ooh, good call. That's one of my
4: white whales. I really gotta play that game. But I that never, is a I've really
0: really good game. Mm-hmm. I have it a, on
4: the uh, Wii Virtual Console. And I, I do want to play it, but it just hasn't happened yet. It
0: is really, really good. And uh, if they would announce, like, a traditional fantasy Star game, I would lose my mind. So, okay. Derek, I think we'll hold back on the rest of the listener mail unless you got a short one.
1: Uh, I'll go through one more short one. Okay. Let's see here. Well, <laughs> this is not short in any way. Uh, so... Uh, Yeah, I think we're going to have to hold off. Wow, Uh, never mind. This this is like lengthier than the previous one. So if I didn't get to your email yet, that is uh, Coriandra or Coriandre, uh, Matt Boone and Matthew Schaefer. I really appreciate all of you emailing us, but I will have to get to those on the next episode.
3: Okay,
0: okay. Sounds good. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for sending in the the listener mail. That was actually a lot of fun. Uh, And -hmm. now I'm going to like, I'm going to end the podcast and go, oh, my God, how could I forget that? Uh, but thanks again, everybody for listening. Uh, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever platform you decide to use. Uh, we always dig the positive reviews. Uh, we do like criticism. Um, but you know, we're always trying to make the show better. Uh, Nick was great having you on the show. First time you're feeling good. Everything's all right. Yeah, I did not puke. So it's a success. (laughs) There you go.
1: Or at least you muted when you did.
0: Yes. Uh, Oh, and uh, last thing, if anybody wants to send us listener mail about what the hell we should do at MAGFest, uh, we're running out of time. Derek, you and I need to figure out what the hell we're going to try to do.
1: Yeah, for a panel?
0: Yeah, I got nothing.
4: Uh, I, I always make the well, trip to MAGFest every year. It's, even we though it's just so
0: record an episode sure. of the show, live, basically
1: just set up mics and BS. Just uh, sit there talking. But, and,
0: but will they let us do that?
1: Well, we'll have to have, I think we should have some kind of a, like a listener engagement kind of thing, like ask us about RPGs or
0: something.
1: I don't know, yeah. man. Uh, all right. All right.
0: Well, I got to put something together because, like, they need uh, things by the end of October. Okay. So, uh, thank you everybody for listening to the show. Stay tuned because we've actually got an interview with a localizer and former member of RPG fan who's worked on uh, Shin Megami Tensei for Apocalypse. So, mm. stay tuned for that interview starting now. Hey everybody, this is your host Robert Steinman here and uh, joining me is Chris Holsworth, one of the wonderful people who actually worked on the localization of Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse. Chris, say hi to everybody.
6: Hi, how are you? Glad to be here.
0: We're doing good, we're doing good. Uh, I just beat Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse, so hopefully our review will go up. And uh, earlier in this episode we were talking about the game uh, quite a bit. So, Chris, why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Uh, I know that there's actually like a little bit of RPG fan in you a little bit. So, you know, let our uh, listeners know what's up there.
6: Yeah. uh, So I used to write for RPG fan. uh, Oh, boy, like 14 years ago, as it sounds about right. Um, And that's basically what got me started in the games uh, industry period. Uh, I was on the games press side until I arrived here at Atlas.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, like, um, what was the transition like for you going from working at a website? Like, what? Like, I, I know we have a lot of listeners and and readers who think about getting into the industry themselves. Can you give us kind of like the shorthand how you got into localization? Like, how did you make that that transition?
6: I mean, it was a, a kind of a long winding road. Um, the Games Press side took a lot of time because I started out doing enthusiast sites like RPG Fan. Um, and then I started doing uh, some light work for larger outlets like 1UP. Then I eventually got hired at EGM. And it's uh kind of a one-two punch. Uh, Atlas was in need of experienced editors, and I had several years' worth of editing under my belt. But I also had the opportunity to network. And you know, I had met Hardin when he came for the uh, SMT4, the original tour, when he was showing it off to the press. So, I mean, my advice to anybody would be just to, like a write, put as much writing experience as you can under your belt, demonstrable editing experience, and B, you know stick out your hand and shake others.
0: Mm-hmm. It's like take the time to network, take the time to learn people, and then eventually uh, things will kind of open up for you, right? Yeah,
6: it's a, it's like
0: a bummer of a reality, but the truth
6: is, networking across any industry, across any business, is really like the gatekeeper to a lot of things.
3: Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. would love
6: to just be hired, you know, based on my portfolio alone, but. When your portfolio is in a pile of 50 to 100 other portfolios, you know, having a face to the name helps.
0: Totally, totally. Now, is this your first game working at Atlas? Is Apocalypse like your first one?
6: Yes, SMT4A was my first project.
0: Cool, cool, cool. So tell us a little about some of the challenges related to that. So this, you know, with, without going into any spoiler, uh, spoilers, of course, for the game, but this is a game that kind of takes place in sort of an alternate ending Shin Megami Tensei 4 uh, narrative. So like, what were some of the challenges related to kind of picking up where a previous game sort of left off?
6: I mean, as a, as a, as a new editor on the project, a lot of the challenges for me was just learning the first game and, um, I don't want to say being bound to its legacy text, but like obviously there's a certain amount of restrictions. I, I can't bring to the table new ideas. I have to abide by the terms and, and phrases that were established in the first game by and large. So that was a little bit of a, of a challenge as far as just, you know, not, 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 so, not, not necessarily having the level of creative freedom that you might have on like a fresh new project that doesn't have uh, a prior in- entries. <laughs> And, and now, of course, having to play SMt four like five times, that was that was challenging.
0: Was that Did mostly that, was that mostly just for like your own research, like kind of figuring out everything about this world so that you could do the proper localization part, like making sure that you're well versed in the world, sort of thing. It was one part my own
6: initiative and one part the company wanted us playing the game uh, specifically to experience the neutral path, which I think they can't like we couldn't rely on people just doing that on their own. It was a very weird convoluted process to land that particular ending and um they wanted me to be familiar with like nozomi because she was going to be such a large role in this game and stuff like that
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. now we've often had uh lots of debate on the website about like the difference between a uh direct localization like where you're trying to keep everything that uh the original writing had in mind and then trying to make it sound natural to a native English speaker uh, or whatever language it's being localized into. Uh, give us kind of your opinion, you know, not obviously a statement from Atlas on the subject, but uh how do you feel about literal localization, literal translation versus the localization process? I'm, I'm a, a split the difference kind of
6: guy. I'm a down the middle. I think that it's, noble and admirable to shoot for the direct uh, translation uh, in, the, in the editing. But uh, as I quickly learned, kind of not realistic, um, because even if something is a great line in Japanese, how it is translated can just absolutely 100 percent not work in English. And so then you're faced with the decision. Is it more important to strictly adhere to, you know, uh, the translators or do I want a good line that would not maybe alienate players? And for me, Personally, one of the reasons I got involved in this job is because Japanese role-playing games are the reason I became a writer. Uh, Japanese role-playing games through RPG Fan are the reason I you know, started my professional career. But sometime in the early 2000s, I kind of fell out of love with the genre because it felt like I was growing up and a lot of the games weren't with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and to some extent, I, I believe that that is the localization work. And to some extent, it's just like the inherent anime nature of the genre sometimes.
0: mm -hmm. That was one thing that really struck me about uh, playing through Apocalypse was as somebody who I I think uh, we're probably similar in age. You know, I'm 31, and I I like my anime games. I do, but I have felt like they've gotten a little tropey in recent years, and I've, I've kind of gravitated away from that. I know our listeners get mad at me when I say that sort of thing, and that's great that they love their their heavy anime games, but that's not necessarily for me. And when I was playing through Apocalypse, I was kind of struck by how much. I was really loving the main cast and getting kind of that Chrono Trigger final fantasy six VI vibe without relying on the heavy anime trope influence that we see in a lot of modern JRPGs these days.
6: For sure. I mean, it was definitely like a, I had a two, uh, a two approach to this, which was obviously to, um, to f- respect the original writing as much as I possibly could. And I, you can like speak to my translator. I, I'm, I'm, exhausted with the, how many like, but why, but why, but why questions that I offer up it with childlike, you know, uh, ignorance of Japanese culture and Japanese language itself. But at the end of the day, like my neurotic writer needs require that I not make a character say a line that I don't feel like a, for like a better term, quote unquote, normal human being would say like, I can't, I don't want, like my my goal is to create the most amount of immersion as i can so that you when you're playing a game you don't think that you're playing a game that's been translated from a different language you might intellectually understand that but while you're playing it you are not necessarily being uh having that shoved in your face with like awkward constructions or or clunky dialogue or things like that so it becomes a matter of focusing on on the the meaning and the tone and the intention of a line not necessarily its words because With Japanese English, it's not necessarily like this, you know, character equals this word or this idea equals this word. It's not that one to one. So sometimes it's more important to capture the essence of a character and make sure that they're saying the same thing, but just saying it in a way that's a lot more effective in English than it would be in a world translation. Mm hmm.
3: Mm hmm.
0: And do you think that that's something that like with the Persona series and having that so steeped in Japanese culture, do you think that's really hard? Like, how do we make this sound natural when you have, you know, somebody say like, oh, Senpai, that sort of thing, like they're speaking in English. How do you make that sound natural to somebody who does not speak the language of Japanese?
6: Yeah, for sure. Persona is a little bit different just because because that game is so steeped in like basically it's a cultural exchange student simulator. Um, we let a lot of things that we might not put in other games slide just because, like, that experience is what people are going for. Um, and with something like a, a game like SMT4A, because it's set in Tokyo, similarly, there's there's certain constructs or cultural phrasings that I would kind of let slide just because, you know, it's it's set there. But when you get into a, a game that's, you know, maybe on in a fantasy realm of its own um, – then you tend to want to weed out the, for lack of a better term, Japanisms uh, a lot more.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think were some of your biggest challenges with Apocalypse? Like, uh, besides the awesome video of Hardin uh, renaming it from Shin Megami Tensei 4 Final to Apocalypse, what were some of the challenges you guys faced?
6: Uh, well, I mean, I wrote that video, so getting hardened to do it was a big challenge.
0: Um, <laughs> As he stares at you from across the room and tries to kill you.
6: Yeah, basically. Okay. I mean, I feel like he might have lived out some fantasies through that video. <laughs> and perhaps return to it once a week. Um, uh, I mean, challenges is is certainly, like, you don't, I I think you don't realize the scope and scale of a game and its textual content until you're staring raw at its face, all the all the The files, just all the characters and the words there. Like I, I came here with such ego and and arrogance, thinking like, oh, I'm gonna write the ship that is localization. I'm gonna do do so much better than things that have let me down in the past. Um, and then I, you, you don't really realize exactly like how many NPCs there are and how much time it takes to go through all those NPCs. And that's after you've done like the main script and so on and so forth. So I think the biggest challenge for me was just striking a balance between quality of work and the quantity of work that I had to sift through. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And th- there was actually the one missed piece of a uh, dialogue. Yeah. Infamously now, yep. um, so so give a little bit of background on that. I know, like, there, there have been 72,000 news stories, you know, referring to that in this piece of dialogue. And I actually ran into it myself. But mm-hmm. I, was, I, was sitting, I was sitting there going, you know, there's millions, uh, not millions, but there's thousands of lines of dialogue in this game. So, like, I understand where it comes from. But, you know, give the, give the listeners a little bit of background. Like, how does that sort of thing happen? And just, like, what does it actually mean to localize something? You're not just rewriting a script. There's also programming involved. Sure. Um... So, I mean, the long
6: story short is like I can't edit or or my translators can't translate what we don't know about, and in this particular case, um for reasons that are really beyond us at this point, that particular line was not in the uh script file that we edited mm-hmm. so we had no idea it existed um and like the blog story says because the q a never managed to get into the the conditions for which it would turn up, which is having a partner down when the uh boss well, says that line it just went over their heads too, and there's no reason for us to look into like the original raw text files for something if we don't know that there's something we should be looking for. Mm-hmm. That's like the kind of the slightly reductive version of how it went down It's just it's a there's a whole lot of text, it's like millions of characters that people weed through, and at the end of the day, you know it's a a small team a handful of people and things get overlooked and that's not an excuse that's not like a pass I'm, I'm not happy about that at all obviously I was very bent out of shape when I woke up that morning and saw the Reddit threads but you know at, at some point it is what it is
0: yeah. and for me it was just a, you know, validation that I was really having a hard time with the game and I was getting my ass kicked. So like I love when the news story comes out saying, Well, you know, our guys are just too good. They never uh they never walked into that and I just I hung my head in shame at that and was
1: just
6: like
0: Oh
6: you know. I mean um, our QA you guys can do a lot of our games with one hand tied behind their back and possibly while watching something on YouTube. Like I,
0: they are better players than me. I didn't actually have a whole lot of trouble with uh Shin Megami Tensei four after the first like two or three hours, but uh Apocalypse toward the end really started to uh to whoop up on me pretty bad, which uh you know in the previous segment I I think I talked about that quite a bit. So um you know some other localizations that I that come to mind um are things like the Dragon Quest series, which are, you know, very heavy text-based, and they always try to make every character sound unique. So then you get those moments where you're trying to read someone that has a Scottish brogue, um, and that can make life very difficult for somebody who's like literally trying to sound out what they're reading. It adds <laughs> a lot of it adds a lot of flavor, but at the same time, it can make it a painful reading experience. Where do you kind of fall down on that? I know with uh, Atlas's games being voiced, you know, you don't have to worry about that too much. But how do you infuse the characters with character, but at the same time, still make it pleasant to listen to or to read?
6: I mean, a lot of this is uh, making a, a, a change since vo became the standard like i I understand why going back to like the snes era a lot of games would have uh like dialect written into the text to kind of communicate that someone was british or french or or affecting an accent to some extent um my personal philosophy is to let the vo do that work if we're going to do it so with something like dogda who had an irish accent i didn't write any of his lines or i should say I, i didn't edit any of his lines with that in mind i just Wrote the lines to be as clear and concise and and uh, esque as possible, and figured that if the VO wanted to go with the accent, they would accentuate it or or add to that, but not necessarily like have to wade through my non-Irish interpretation of what it means to sound Irish
3: mm
0: mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to give a special shout-out to Dagda. Uh, he is probably my new favorite character in a video game. He is just... He, he's so brilliantly written, and, you know, I'm, I'm definitely polishing your ego here a little bit, but he was just... Yeah,
6: no, I'm, let's keep going.
0: Go I mean, he was just fantastic. Like, I just... Every time he showed up, just that callousness, that coldness of him... I, I am a high school physics teacher, so uh the listeners understand that I am, in fact, cold and dead inside. But, like... <laughs> He was just so fun. And I think that with Shin Megami Tensei 4, one of the complaints was that the game didn't have a whole lot of character. Like, I, I liked Walter, I liked Jonathan, I liked Isabeau, but they... They were a little bland and they were supposed to be more down to earth, I feel like. But with Apocalypse, there was so so much more color was put into these characters. Like I couldn't help but fall in love with Asahi and Dogda was just the best. So do you think that that was like a conscious decision from the original Japanese to give this game kind of a little bit more oomph, a little bit more, you know, persona in there, if that makes sense? definitely
6: i think so I, I i i do think that persona is starting to like leak its way into smt a little bit and um that smt4 apocalypse is like a direct response to a lot of the criticisms that were lobbied against smt4 um, be it from like gameplay mechanics um, like the map or the objective uh, marker thing to uh the more binary uh peace and anarchy route versus the very complicated neutral route, and in this particular case, uh, I think characters also get swept into that equation, and based on the translations, I would say that, like, I had a lot more to work with, like, I could glean a lot more about the characters specifically, uh, in terms of personality, and channel that in English much more effectively than, I mean, I have I never read the original translations for SMT4, but, like, you know, they're all samurai, they're all cut from the same relative cloth, um, so you get a lot of bleed over between characters.
3: Mm hmm.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, no, it, it was just I, that ended up being one of my favorite things about the game. Was like, I was interested in the cutscenes. You know, I, I get why four was a little subdued and mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense. But then, even better, and I put this in my review, was the straight man characters of uh, Flynn, Jonathan Walter, and Isabeau, they then play off so well the more colorful, like, misfits of Apocalypse. Like that, even that works even better. Where like as main characters, they didn't work quite so well, but as kind of side characters that are going in in tandem with your own group, they just seem to play off each other so well.
6: Oh, for sure, there was a very intentional um, approach to Flynn. Uh, I kind of borrowed liberally from oh man, Mary, I'm like not her last name. She's a writer of Deus Ex, where she was talking about how they write Adam Jensen in this very neutral fashion because he's supposed to be the character's player avatar but the player might be a stealth person or he might be you know a violent shootout kind of type of person so they need to make the character kind of neutral so that he can lean either way without it uh, affecting like the ludonarrative dissonance for lack of less pretentious terms so with Flynn it was very much like we're going to write him neutrally and this like almost stock hero character like this man of the people but like you said by contrasting that with how, like, over the top Nozomi and Navarre, even Asi, is, uh, it makes him stand out in a, in like a, I guess, like a negative space kind of way.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He stands out more because everybody around him is more normal. Or, excuse yeah. me, more, more out there. Sorry. He's yeah. more normal. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, any other kind of like, tricks of the trade that kind of happened with this. Like I've always wondered as somebody who came to the SMT series so late, I've always wondered why like the ice spells are called Bufu and stuff like that. Like, are those just holdovers the way that fire, Fira, and all that from final fantasy, like, is that just a holdover from the old games? That would be my best guess. It's just mm-hmm. a legacy. As far as I'm, uh, as
6: far as I know, they, I didn't get necessarily a, a history of the franchise when I started here. Um, and there's a certain amount of trepidation towards altering legacy uh, terms and texts because fans, you know, tend to have fallen in love with these terms and phrases and, you know, we don't want to take that away from them necessarily.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's like once it's been ingrained in them, they're like, no, we're going to defend this. You're not going to change it. And I understand that feeling, too. Like, I, I'm not, you know, trying to disparage on anybody. You know, it, it's I think it's one of the reasons why we brought it up before. But it's one of the reasons why people love Dragon Quest so much is because it has not changed.
6: Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a it's a matter of perspective. Right. Like it's like learning another language. You say Bufu and the player here is ice. I, you can go back to, um, like fantasy star games and that had a bunch of wacky names for cells, spells. Yes, it did. Yep. Yep. And like, they're all relatively normal to me because I was growing up. I grew up with them, but like, not like, not unlike you, I kind of stepped into SMT as an adult and I was just like kind of rolling my eyes at the silliness of the, of the names. But I guess thinking of it through that lens, I can, I I can definitely understand it and get it. hmm
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Is there any kind of dream project that maybe Atlas hasn't worked on just yet, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to ask you to break embargoes or anything like that, but is there any kind of like dream project that maybe Atlas hasn't brought over to America that you would really want them to do? Like a specific game
6: or like I just a concept that would sing to me?
0: Uh more more of a game, like something that maybe in the back catalog of uh, uh of Shimagami Tensei games that we've never gotten mm-hmm. over here. I mean, uh If 13th
6: Sentinel makes its way stateside, I would love to be involved in that project. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of the art style, I'm a big fan of things involving robots, and I'm a big fan of 2D side-scrolling action RPGs, so uh, that would probably be the most exciting thing I can think of that is an extant Atlas Japan title. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And then no plans to make us an HD remake of Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne. I think RPG fan would explode if you guys ever actually announced something like that.
6: I Who knows? Probably <laughs> if there's enough outcry and everyone has no ideas in 10 years, who knows? Maybe it'll be the <laughs> Atlas version of Final Fantasy VII. Beg for it long enough.
0: <laughs> and it'll happen. I, I bounced off Nocturne. I, I tried playing it right after I finished uh, Shin Megami Tensei 4, and I, I'll admit that playing Apocalypse has made me want to give it another try. I think that game, uh, maybe I'm just uh, too weak when it comes to the Shin Megami Tensei series, but that game knocked me around pretty hard, and I, I was—I got a little frustrated with it. Oh, for sure. I tried to play it back in 2003 when it came out.
6: Um... Because I had a friend who was very much into the series and I couldn't do it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a blind instrument when it comes to RPGs. I'm not particularly elegant, strategic, or tactical. Uh, I pick the coolest looking characters and put them in my party. Uh, their value or strengths be damned. And, um, like you, SMT Nocturne, like knocked me down. Just the idea that there was no, no safe place, no town that I couldn't get into a fight into or, couldn't couldn't not be getting into battles, so I ended up not completing that game way back in the day um and then booted it back up in a post s m t four world and I do find now that I like have a competency in the press turn combat system, it is less intimidating, and I think that's really like kind of the 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 way that goes with s m t games like everyone has their first one, and the one that you learn makes all the other ones before and after that become instantly more accessible.
3: Yeah, It seems no. a lot
6: less, like, beyond your comprehension.
0: Totally. And, and my entry point ended up being the Persona series. And so, you know, a little bit of that press-turn combat system with exploiting weaknesses but not gaining yeah. additional turns, just the knockdown mechanic. Uh, but then I, I want, really wanted to get into the other games in the series and there's just, there's something very appealing to me about having the JRPG on a handheld and I actually loved having Shin Megami Tensei 4 on the 3DS. Like that just felt so good and you guys managed to pull off a menu system that everybody should rip off and we've seen the screenshots of Persona 5 and frankly Atlas just needs to design everyone's UI from now to eternity. I, I don't know why they're getting it so right and everybody continues to struggle with it.
6: Uh, it's certainly a, a slick, slick UI. Uh, someone's going to get a lot of promotions based on their work on P5 alone.
0: <laughs> so any last minute things you want to tell uh, the listeners about localization? Uh, anything else that really like stands out in your mind? I mean, I'm such a neophyte when it comes to these sorts of things. I'm not, mm-hmm. uh, I- I'm not a language person. Uh, I-, I am a, I am a science physicist person. So I have profound respect for people that speak multiple languages and can do this kind of work, but I'll, I'm almost at a loss when it comes to it. So is there anything else that you really want to tell people? Um. I mean, I guess what I would say is that like,
6: I understand that there's like a lot of of camps in, uh, regarding localization. Like there's the people who think that like the working designs route is the best way to go, and there's people who think that the uh, like the way Atlas handles things is the way to go. And I think the reality is that it's somewhere in the middle of the two. Uh, I don't think that you'll ever meet a localization editor who wants to wildly change the content of a game. I am not necessarily into the genre nearly as much as I was as a kid. But I don't want to change the content. I don't want to disrespect the authors. I don't want to disrespect the players. Um, ultimately, our 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 goal, and I believe that this should be the goal of any good localization editor, is just to make take a line and make it the best version of itself as you can in English, mm-hmm. uh, retaining the retaining the meaning, retaining the tone, re- retaining the point of the, the line, but making it so that like it's it's you don't want to necessarily cater specifically to people who already know what they signed up for all the time because people who uh and this is not a dig like and you know I used to watch a lot of anime and I used to play a lot of uh JRPGs but like you are already a part of that culture and you're kind of like for lack of better term desensitized to uh the ins and outs of localization but we're not doing ourselves any favors if we make a, a thing that caters to that level of comfort and doesn't necessarily allow for new players to come on board and when an experience is too jarringly for lack of a better term alien-esque like if it's just like this language is weird and, and, and bumpy and clunky and everyone is acting really bizarre and strange and nobody feels like you know culturally recognizable to me that's one more person who's not going to be playing something and like we were all a newcomer at some point and i think i think uh I think it'd be a different story for me if I had jumped into the scene back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If uh, if if Tales, uh, one of the Tales games, was one of my first JRPGs, and not Shining Force, it'd be like just a completely different story for me.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and talk to the listeners. And, you know, Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse is out right now. Um, I I know somebody is probably screaming at their their headset right now and saying, please ask him about Persona 5. Uh, Are you working on Persona 5? Uh, Can you say anything other than yes or no? Or do you have to hang up immediately now?
6: I can say it exists.
0: Okay. that that is is a thing
6: that I have seen. I can confirm its existence. (laughs) <laughs> I've seen words, both in Japanese and English in it, uh, so that's about all I can really say.
0: That's totally fine. That's totally fine. I think, you know, Atlas has really come into its own in the past couple of years, and we've seen a lot of success out of the main SMT series now, and, and seen success out of Persona, and it's something that is really special to watch, and I kind of hope it continues over the next couple of years. I think we're all yeah, I, I know everyone wants to get
6: their hands on it, and believe me, there's nobody at this company who doesn't want to, A be done working on the project because boy, is it a big one and Mm -hmm. be like, give this great gem to players. But, you know, we need time to do the best we can to give, to do what it deserves, which is great localization work.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think that makes total sense. And, you know, there was a part of me that was slightly bummed when it got announced for, uh, for February, but then I was like, nah, I want them to do a good job. And I'm I'm not just saying that because you're here. I was like, nah, let them do a good job on
6: it. Mm -hmm.
0: I know it's hard. It's weird in this, in this,
6: internet age in this world where something released in japan is very present overseas whereas it used to not be Mm -hmm. but i mean when you're talking about something as big as persona five you need time language is hard words are tough
0: words are very tough most people can't put them together correctly including myself i don't even know why they pay me to do that (laughs) well thanks again Chris and uh, thanks to the listeners and I think that's it great well thank you for having me Uh, mind if I
6: seamlessly plug some stuff
0: you go right ahead and plug all you want sir
6: oh great Um, I mean if anybody wants to look me up on Twitter I'm at manadrive like a bad Final Fantasy 13 reference M-A-N-A-D-R-I-V-E and uh, just do that You'll find all the other dumb stuff I do. There's a comedy (laughs) podcast.
0: (laughs) Thanks a lot, Chris. And uh, listeners, we will see you all later.
3: And that's where I will cut it.